welcome to Moralia Python Radio with your hosts, Eric Burke and Owen McIntyre. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Moralia Python Radio. And uh, we are joined tonight by... Uh, we're going to be talking... This This was one that I, I wanted to talk about for a while. And... Um, I thought it would be interesting because Lori Torina oh, – I fucked her name up, didn't Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was – Go ahead, not go well. Yeah, it's over. It. Just, I, this whole intro, <laughs> I Torina. want you to restart. Yeah, just restart, right. play the music, yep. you know. Oh, blah, my blah, God. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> All right. Was, Welcome to okay. – yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. So um, – I don't even know. I, I mean, I, I've, I've seen her post and, and everything like that. Yeah. Um, but um, somehow, some way, I think she she put up a, a blog and somehow I got onto her website, which I didn't know she had a website, which, by the way, is Behavior Education LLC. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, BehaviorEducation.org. Um, and she's been doing uh, behavioral studies with uh, snakes. And, yes. Um in particular, uh, she has amassed quite a collection of carpet pythons. Uh, so I thought, well, what better uh, to talk about something like that than uh, somebody that's actually working with carpet pythons? So we're going to be talking to her. She's got some uh, different, um, you know, different studies that she did, and we're going to be breaking mm-hmm. them down and talking about them. And I think I think it'll be cool. I think this is one of those things that. Um, a lot of times, um, snake keepers, we've said this multiple times, seem to be stuck in 1994. And for a lot I'm of them, <laughs> you probably was weren't even born, you son of a bitch. No, stop it. <laughs> you were your I fifth, was at least that. I was your fifth sure grade graduation in, in 1994. I don't know, probably. somewhere around there, maybe. <laughs> God. <laughs> son of a bitch. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> oh, wait. It, it was, I was born in '86, so if we're talking about 1994. I mean, you know. Yeah, exactly. I'm sorry. You were right? Yeah. Go on. Yeah, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, it's good. I'm playing gigs in New York, and you're in fifth grade. Awesome. Yeah, sounds about right. Sounds about right. Anyway, but, um, <laughs> so so I think I think you know some of the stuff that uh, that she's doing is very interesting, and I think it warrants a uh, conversation. And uh, I think that yeah. um, I think this will be one of those episodes that will open up your minds a little bit uh, to uh, really you know what snake behavior is all about. So I think I think it will be be very cool, and I I, I kind of always like uh, these type of episodes because. You know, she, she has watched. You know, I, I was looking at her. I think it was her bread lie study that she was doing, and basically she has it broke down on her website about you know like how often they're perching, how often they're on the ground, how often you know yeah. what I mean. Like, yeah. so basically, it could really give you insight into what's more important for the species that you're working with. Um, you know, is it is it a being arboreal, is it being terrestrial, is it having a hide, you know what I mean? Like it's, what what is going to make that snake most comfortable? It is, and it's really cool because I mean some of the bread lie that are in her project, I think three of them 
um, I produced. So she has. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> I know, right? Like I should have told you some of the things that I'm doing, but I just, yeah. I never connected us. Anyway, but yeah. it's funny because the one I sold her was this. It, it was I, I gave it to a friend of mine as a young as a baby, and it was a terror. Apparently, it bit people. It freaked out a lot. It couldn't do this, couldn't do that, couldn't be handled, all this other crap. And she contacted me. I'm like, well, I do have this older one because it was just given back to me. She takes it. She sends me pictures of her, like, holding it. It's cruising around her house. Like, I'm like, all right, well, clearly somebody yeah. was doing something wrong here. Right. Because the snake did a turnaround. I'm like, I, I, all right. So there could yeah. be something to this, that maybe this snake wasn't being having something fulfilled, that it is – <clears throat> and that's why it had this such a change in personality. So yeah, and I think um, you know we're also going to be hitting on um, you know uh, different things as far. I'm trying to as it pops up. I guess it's not popping up. Um, mm. But but um, you know stress and stuff like that. And I, I think it will just be a very interesting uh, episode. So we'll get to that yeah. in a second. Uh, calendar First. contest is live um, yes. on Morelia Pick of the Week, and we're already getting some very very nice uh, entries. Uh, I've seen. Yeah, I and, think. Um, um, yeah. I, I I understand that people are like, how can the rules say it has to be in my care? How can I take a picture of a wild snake? Jesus Christ! I mean, like, <laughs> do we really have to explain this? <laughs> Like, yeah, I had to I, go in okay. and alter it a couple times. <laughs> That's adorable <laughs> that you're really going to split the hairs that bad. Obviously, right. all the other photos need to be a snake that's in your care. If it is the wild animal section, you have to be the one who takes the picture. It can't, you can't go on National Geographic and be like, I like this cheetah. Submit. Like, no, you need to go take the damn picture. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's, like, it's not that hard. Yeah. Anyway, and I kept, back to what you were I kept saying. thinking. I was like, am, "Am I?" I was like, "Wow, I wrote that wrong. Wow, I wrote that wrong. Wow, I wrote that wrong." No, but apparently it's just like, uh. <laughs> apparently you got to spell everything out. But there have I been did. a ton of really cool entries already. So yeah, like as I as I scrolled down, like Andreas, uh, holy shit, he has like the perfect shot of a jungle. Yes. Carpet. Maternally yes. incubating with the big head, and then you see the little tiny baby head. It's like just the perfect shot. That was, I think, that was like a finalist last year. I want to remember. I remember that picture. So, I want yeah. to say that one was a finalist, and then there was another jungle that just pushed it over. So, I don't know, but that one so far has been sticking out to me again. So, you know, <clears throat> yeah, and then. uh uh, there was a there was a pretty cool picture of a wild. Uh, I think it, it looks like it's out in the wild of a diamond python. Uh, yeah. From uh, from Sean Armstrong. Uh, that was pretty cool. But yeah, man. So it's over on Morelia Pick of the Week. Um, there's some really 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 nice uh, entries. Now um, uh, for the sure. wild animal thing. It doesn't need to be a Morelia. We prefer it to be no. a reptile but you right. know you, go, you show us like if you went out herping and found a copperhead and you took a bunch of pictures of it that's awesome show it to us um if you went scuba diving and found a sea turtle 
if if you're this guy that we know that went to like I don't know Africa and Indo and should be blowing up that section, where the hell are you? So, yeah, you know, it's like I'm a little I'm a little annoyed, but um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. Nipper Nipper Reed posted up he posted up this really cool shot of a bread lie, but I love his yeah. uh, his what he said. He's like, uh, I know I submitted this before. But it's a pin sharp picture of a bread lie in natural light against Australian eucalyptic tree. Uh, it's crying to be used for a calendar. You know, <laughs> screw that black glass late nineties. Oh stuff. no! <laughs> <laughs> if you don't use it, I will give you both stingy lap legs, leg slaps. What the hell is <laughs> Sorry. that? Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Well, he posted the one of some little viper like eating a bug, and I'm like, that's cool. So yeah. you know, there's oh, yeah. yeah, there's there's, there's oh, a lot of a stuff cool there. Shot. Thank yeah, you. Cool stuff. Isn't that kind of freaky. Anyway, yeah, man. Cool stuff. Speaking of we'll cool go over stuff, there. Enter. Do that. Um, so. You know our our good friend Paul Harris, UK Pythons, probably the the dare I say one of the best carpet python breeders in the world, uh, possibly. It's really or, not that far of a stretch. I mean, you know, yeah. it's. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, holy shit, man. Paul is just killing it this season. First of well, all, he got lucky on the first one that we're going to talk about cuz that's the the odds were stacked totally against him and he hit it and that's awesome. Yeah. Hypo albino zebra. Man, is that thing cool. <laughs> Dude, I, can't, I, can't. I I hate I hate albinos. I hate them because I want to see <laughs> the colors, but they all come out like pink and I'm like, "Damn you." develop and i have to wait <laughs> yeah. and i hate that so it's it's gonna be so cool i just can't wait to see what happens yeah so and um the other cool one that he that he posted out i guess is what you would call an exanic tiger granite and i remember i was saying this on a post i think this is what i shared on our page was um yeah i remember discussions with uh I think it was maybe you and Zach and Dave and <laughs> Is this and, one of those moments where we're gonna bring back something I've told you a million times in the yeah, past you guys are, and now you put me wrong? I don't, I don't know if Zach was in it, but I know you and Dave were telling me that I was I wanna crazy. say Zach was because I want him to go down with us. I don't know if no, he actually no, was. I think I think Zach I'm gonna was put on him in the boat. Yeah, oh, okay. I can hear him say, Come on, dude <laughs> Um, yeah, 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 the no. the tiger, uh, you know, is is really cool in this in this granite exanic granite. I mean, it just takes it up another notch, man. Now, it's, I will say that you, when we were, when we talked about this stuff before, you were talking about zebra to tiger and how it would kind of organize the stripes, right. and. You kind of see that with this, but that's granted. Those are two entirely different things. So I stand by my. Assessment. No, zebra works the same, man. It works the same. I'm telling you, it's Shit. very similar genes. Shit. <laughs> because when you breed a zebra to a granite, you can't tell what you got. <laughs> You're just like yeah, that what? is annoying. Wait, what is yeah, it? So yeah, that is very annoying. But no, it and, and it is basically what you were talking about. You still have the busy patterns on the sides, but you kind of got this really cool stripe thing going down. It's almost like. It's almost like there's supposed to be a stripe on the side, but it's not there. It's just the absence of pattern. Um, it's like the saddles just break up, which is really cool. So, I don't know, man. So, He's got some cool tiger stuff going on there, too. Yeah. 
And you know what's crazy is is that mm. <clears throat> the stuff that he's posting is not the cool shit that he has. You know what I mean? I know like, that that's <laughs> the annoying part. <laughs> this is this is the stuff I have allowed you all to see. It's like oh, exactly. What else yeah. is going on? But it's the other thing is and 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 it's not. Um, did you see the clutch that Balin hatched? Yes. The yes. Tigers and did Dude. you see those goddamn reds? Holy shit! Holy yes. shit! Yeah, that was really, really nice, man. Like, he's taking those reds to another level. And he bred red to a caramel. Oh, my God, sacrilege. (laughs) He did it. No. (laughs) The thing you're not supposed to do. I was glad to see it, man. And the babies look phenomenal, so. I'm going to smack you. Um, The problem is is that, you know, I would say with him, his reds are so distinct that it might actually be – easy for him to tell the difference of red versus caramel. Um, Cause it was always when we first started, it was, it would be really dumb to breed a red to a caramel cause everything come out red. And then you had no right. idea what was going on. Now, if you right. were willing to hold back for a year, it would might be worth it, but nobody ever did it because nobody wants to wait for a year on a bunch of babies. Nobody wants to Eric Burke the whole clutch. I mean, that's <laughs> that's, that's now an official term. Somebody posted. I'm that. making it that way. Yeah. What are you going to Burke the clutch? You know, Burke <laughs> oh the clutch? God. Are you? <laughs> wow. In my, day, it used to be, in my day, it used to be called Yasser. It used to be called Yassering the clutch. Uh, um, oh, but, you dude. Know, congratulations, buddy. So. <laughs> oh man. And the, yeah. the 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 old the OG IJ guy is you know because yeah. he was the IJ guy man, um, but uh, yeah man it's cool stuff so I love this time of year um, this is like the perfect time of year because not only do we see cool stuff hatching out from us. Here in the northern hemisphere. Oh, oh okay. We also, you meant, okay. You, you meant us in the northern me. hemisphere, not you yeah. and me, because we're not done. me and you. No, no, clearly not. Because um, we suck at this. All right, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, we also see what is up the Australian sleeves uh, when it comes to you know because their parents stuff up, and uh, yeah, it's it's really cool. It's my favorite time. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to hit on was that crazy zebra, man. That was, yeah, that was that really badass. Like super reduced pattern, super reduced black, I guess. But man, tons of yellow. You know, this was when, when zebra first emerged. This is what everyone was dreaming of. Like they wanted yes. a insanely black and yellow zebra. But it's like everybody kind of dabbled a little bit with zebra, and then they just kind of stopped. Like nobody, like come on. Like I haven't seen really killer zebras except for like a few people. That thing's insane. Um, yeah, it's very pinstripey. You know how I like yeah. pinstripey stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, cool, so. man. That's that's a cool snake. And I guess it's selectively bred, you know. And that's the cool thing about carpets, man. Like, if you're going to do a carpet python breeding project, you think you just put two normal snakes, whether they're jungles, coastals, inland, doesn't matter, whatever. You put them together, and then out pops this crazy-looking thing, and you're like, oh, my God. Now what? Listen, <laughs> this is, no, this is mine. That's what you do. It's like because I oh, learned yeah, that yeah, yeah. you keep everything. When you look at the group and there's two or three that stand out, those are yours. Then you sell the rest. Right. My dumbass was like the pretty one will catch a will fetch a higher price. Stupid, <laughs> stupid, 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 <laughs> idiot, stupid, idiot. Keep the pretty ones. It's like that's yeah. And, 
Mm. Anyway, mm-hmm. we could sit here all day and talk about Owen's yeah. failures, but <laughs> we don't have time. Likewise. Unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. the show, unfortunately, the show cuts off at midnight, so right. we can't hang out too long. Let's uh, – I don't know. Anything else you want to hit on before we carry uh, uh, on? I would say um, no. I mean it was basically <laughs> – I thought you were going to give me some information. I would I got say – uh, <laughs> I would say uh, – Well, no. it's like there's no, like what do you want me to say? I was over here, and I fed quail to my carpet pythons and then panicked for about an hour because the quails were a little bit too big. Like, you know, oh it was – Yeah. Baby? worked out fine. No, no. I fed like yeah. – I'm out of medium rats, and medium rats are the most expensive things on the planet. If you could buy stock in medium rats, we'd all be millionaires, okay? Mm. But mm. I have I have quail that are about the mm. same size as a medium rat, but the problem is that they have a bigger chest. Um, yeah, they so kind of like – Exactly. So I fed them to my two, three-year-old – my three-year-old that are on the and they ate them. But it was a struggle, and it was it was a bit much for them. Maybe not as much as I am saying that it is, but I felt it was a bit much. So right. you know, they're stretching over it. You see a beak like going down their side, and you're like, "Oh God, it's going to poke through, and it's going to kill me," <laughs> and all right. this other stuff. So you know, you panic for about twenty minutes, um, and it's just like that. But yeah, it was fine. And then feeding the Karibo was just—I literally filled a bowl with chicks put it in there and they like moved their mouths and ate them all. And I would say like, you know, we talk about knowing what I know now, I'd have nothing but bread, lie diamonds and uh-huh. scales. Like I want right. to add Kribo to that because they're so easy to feed. I'm tempted to see what they will eat. <laughs> like, you know, can of tuna. They don't think. They just eat. <laughs> They'll eat the whole can and everything. I, 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 they might. <laughs> Don't go can. Use the bag. Use the plastic bag. (laughs) Exactly. Riley's posted up a video feeding his tilapia, and I'm like, oh, oh, hell yeah. We're going to the supermarket. I'm going to see what these things will eat. And, like, you know, drumsticks, chicken wings. I mean, like, I'm going to figure this out. They're going to be my cheap garbage disposal. (laughs) When I worked at the old store, I was around a lot of farms, so I would get a lot of, um, you know, farmers and stuff that would come in for our, like, the produce that we were tossing away for, like, their horses and and their animals and stuff. You're going to be the guy going to the seafood department. Way to old spoiling. Hell yeah. (laughs) You got any old fish? It's like feeding monitors. They'll just eat it. All right, well, let's see what the hell you'll eat. Like, you know, I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to have some cool stories. They're going to have a little checklist. Will the Kribo eat it? And then we'll take odds. Oh, like, you know, yeah. One last thing before we bring Lori mm-hmm. on. Um our 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 good buddy Bill Stiegel um decided yeah. to <laughs> call make ESPN a today? he called ESPN <laughs> to defend the reptile community. Way to go, Bill. That's my man. He does everything high end. Like he doesn't like call the local radio show. He goes straight to the top, man. He's going ESPN. And all and he does is talk about himself. You know, he could have dropped an NPR thing in there. My buddies, Owen and Eric, what's up? Like, no, he didn't. He just talks about himself. Like, you know, selfish. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. What do you say? <laughs> oh. oh, you didn't listen to it? Oh no! Oh, I know you do it. I I literally oh, okay. just did it before we went on the show. Yeah, it was it was very good. He did a very yeah. good job defending the reptile community. That were all not whack jobs. Um, 
But, you know, we did send Bill out there to talk. And I know Bill. Bill's a whack job. It's like... It's, it's, <laughs> he's, you know, you get a couple drinks in him, and he's a different man. So it's... <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, he wasn't yeah. drinking in that when he was uh, on the God, show. So dude. all things are good, man. <laughs> all things are he's, good. He's living the life, man. Good for him. All right. All right. Let's get Lori. Yes. Uh, enough of us rambling. Um, That's it. Yeah. Nobody wants to listen to that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> hey, Lori. How you doing? Welcome to Morelia Python Radio. How you doing? Hey, I, I'm doing well. Thank you. Sure. I'm sorry I butchered your last name. Did I say it right? Torini? Torini? Torini. Torini. Oh, okay. I did get it right. All right. No, you've got to write time. them like the second you try. You kind of got it wrong time. the first time and right, right. the second time. See? Okay. So, you know, yeah, whatever. I'm so, so bad with names. I'm sorry. You I are. Apologize. That's why I just don't talk. <laughs> so, um, um, Lori, uh, we normally ask everybody who's been on the show um, how you got your start in reptiles. So please tell us, you know, what what started you in on this and what started your passion for reptiles? Well, I've always had a passion for animals. I grew up with animals. And we had cats, dogs, rabbits, gerbils, um, horses when I was growing up. And we lived in Illinois, um, sort of not too far from St. Louis, near a lake and a creek and a stream. And so we had tons of reptiles and amphibians and insects all around where we lived. And I spent a lot of time outside. So the neighborhood kids and I would catch a lot, but my mom would never let me keep them because she said they would die. She said, you know, I'd come in with frogs in a box or a turtle or lightning bugs in a jar and watching them light up. And she'd say, you have to let those go. They're going to die. So I didn't own a reptile until my early 20s. And I got a snake. Um, I was working as a veterinary assistant at an animal emergency center. And the Humane Society brought a ball python in that someone had abandoned in an apartment. And I just held it all night and I was working the reception desk holding it in my lap and when they came to pick it up he said you know you can take it if you want and I said (laughs) okay cool (laughs) so I take this snake home Um, on the way home I buy a book about ball pythons I buy all the stuff I had that snake for years and Mm -hmm. I loved it I just you know I love all animals and I thought the snake was really cool I just didn't like feeding it live and at the time and I'm talking I probably got that snake in 1996. Okay. Um, so we're talking over 20 years ago when I would bring up, well, can I feed it something frozen? Can I get it like snake sausages? Everybody was like, no, that's ridiculous. It won't eat that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't know how many pet mice I ended up with because I figured if it didn't eat it right away, like if I put the mouse in and came back hours later and it was still there, that it deserved to live. So, um, <laughs> I had like a mouse colony and the snake, and I had it for many, many, many years. And then someone that I worked with um, heard me talking about it one day and said, I hate mice. I'll take that snake. I'll feed that snake. And so she took the snake and had it and didn't mind feeding it. Um, <laughs> hatred of mice. It's like, all right, yeah. well, I guess you can do that work. <laughs> so I didn't have a reptile again until the last couple, about two years ago when I was getting close to retiring I mm-hmm. told my husband I want to get a snake again, a snake again. <laughs> oh, and, no. Uh, <laughs> just How'd that work out? <laughs> yeah, it was like they're you know, potato chips. I do have a snake, and I have a lot of other snakes. <laughs> oh, those other ones don't count. Oh, okay. So, uh, okay. 
but I said, you know, I want to research what kind – I don't want another ball python. It was really kind of quiet for my personality. And so I want to really research and make sure I know what kind of snake I'm getting. And I had – knowing I was close to retirement, gone back to school to get a second degree in a – applied science of zookeeping technology and i had to take um herpetology and reptile and amphibian husbandry and i said well i'll take that and then i'll have a better idea of what kind of snake i want to get so i Mm -hmm. this is a couple years ago i enroll in the class we each get assigned an animal that we have to take care of for the um, semester and do keeper talks on and a project about and you know i look at the list it says lori Torini carpet python and i said what the heck is a carpet python (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I never heard of that. So I go, okay. on, I go Google it, and I read the Wikipedia page. And I'm like, wow. And so you know all those little citations they give you at the bottom mm-hmm. for more information? Then I read all those. And then I just go down this rabbit hole, and I start reading all this stuff about carpet pythons. And it takes me to the E.B. Morelia website and Inland Reptiles, and I'm reading about all the subspecies. Well, I see there's a book, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, there's a whole book about them. So I ordered the book on Amazon, and it, it, it arrives on a Friday, and by noon Saturday I had finished the book. Damn. I, <laughs> I was like, I loved it. and I liked that it was science-based, that there was um, evolutionary biology in it. There was the ge- ge- uh, geologic history of Australia. I mean, I just loved it, and I loved reading about all the different kinds. And so I go back to school. And mm. I think the instructor hated me after that because I'm, <laughs> you know, the carpet pythons don't have the right heat. They're, you know, this she's not shedding correctly. They they don't have any perching. They don't have any shell. You know, um, <laughs> I did my keeper talks, and you know, I got a lot of extra credit on them. And by um, the end of the semester, and and my my project and just everything about the carpet pythons, about two weeks before the end of the semester, he says, Yeah, you don't need to come back to class. <laughs> I said, what? Go away. He says, you don't need to take the final. He says, you cannot come back to class and have an A, so you don't need to come back to class. <laughs> Please stop wow. telling me I'm doing things wrong. All right. Um, well. <laughs> yeah, so, but during the semester, you know, I worked with all the other snakes. There were Demerol boas and Burmese pythons and king snakes and rat snakes and bull snakes and sand boas, red tail boas, rainbow boas, hognose. You know, they have a lot of snakes there. But And I tried to read about those, but I really couldn't even finish the Wikipedia page about those other snakes. <laughs> I just, I'm like, are there any other books on carpet pythons I can read? <laughs> so um, midterm came, and I got four carpet pythons on my own. I went to a pet shop in Denver, and um, – you know, I'm like, I'm looking for carpet pythons. I had called ahead. They said they had some, but they lost. They didn't have the information about them, so they mm-hmm. were selling them really cheap. We don't know when they were hatched. We think they came from this breeder, but we don't really know what kind they are. I said, I don't care. I'll take them. And I come mm-hmm. home, and my husband says, well, I thought you were getting one. I didn't know you were getting four. <laughs> <laughs> so I have my, my carpet python babies at home that I'm caring for. And then the semester ended, and then around July, one of the lab techs came to me and said, hey, do you want these carpet pythons from the zoo lab? You know, we can't accommodate a, a semi-arboreal species. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, okay, take them. So I brought them home. So I have them here now, too. And uh, <laughs> nice. they're, an un- <laughs> they're unknown. Like, they were given to the school by a girl that said they were her boyfriends, who he got from a friend who got them from somebody else. And, um, right. 
I, I just I don't know how old they are or what subspecies they are. They're probably Darwin's or or uh, pop ones, formerly known as IJs, just from mm, based right. on how they look and their behavior. But I, you know, I don't care. Um, mm. And then it's just ballooned since then. Sort of getting them made me think about the welfare aspect. Of now you've got these two snakes, and they've been in how many homes now? And right. their whole history is lost. Their lineage information's lost. Their whole history's lost. They've been passed down through all these people. Who knows how they were taken care of before? Um, mm-hmm. The college lab wasn't really able to accommodate their needs there. And uh, then I started kind of looking more into snake behavior and snake welfare, and uh, I just got deep into this stuff. And I was already a certified dog trainer and a horse trainer and was working with these other animals. Um, I guess this was just a natural progression now that I'm retired that I can spend time doing, now adding this other species to my work. Right. So so what was your background in animal behavior and animal training? Like how far does that go back? Well, I was about 11 when I started formally training um, and apprenticing with an instructor that trained horses and taught riding lessons, and I continued that all through college. I mean, I continue that today. Mm. Um, but at some point I got certified with the certified horsemanship association. And then, um, gosh, so long ago, you're making me think so long ago. I know, right? (laughs) Probably 20 years ago, I started apprenticing as a dog trainer and then eventually teaching my own classes and then getting certified in that through the certification council for professional dog trainers. And so, um, a lot of my animal behavior and training comes from that aspect of it but my job with the city of Colorado Springs Mm -hmm. which was with the police department in around 2009 took an unexpected but welcome turn in that um, I think it was around that time FEMA demanded that all municipalities had a community animal response team and the police department was tasked to put that together and the along with the office of emergency management and I had a reputation for being an animal person because despite my job with the city, I continued all these other things on the side. And they mm-hmm. said, we need you to start this cart team and put it together and train people. So I went to a whole bunch of training, and I'm really thankful for that um, because the training wasn't just with, like, dogs and cats. It was, it was with exotic animals and reptiles and amphibians and wildlife um, as well as livestock on behavior and handling during um, emergency incidents and disasters. And then I, in turn, had to teach emergency responders and CART volunteers how to do evacuations and transports and set up emergency shelters and then reunite these animals with who they belong with after the, after the incident. And I did that for several years, and we were deployed uh, during the Waldo Canyon Fire in 2012 and during the Black Forest Fire out here in 2013. Wow. So that's how that's kind of my background in animal behavior and training. Um, mm-hmm. Well, and then of course when I was in the zookeeping technology program, you know you're trained heavily on animal handling and behavior and training because all of the zoos now, um, you have to be able to train the animals. They train the animals um, in sanctuaries and zoos and wildlife parks for all voluntary. Um, but to voluntarily submit for like weighing and veterinary procedures and as much as they can. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was a huge part of that curriculum was training and behavior. Yeah, that's awesome. So uh, it sounded like Morelia kind of hooked you in and kind of reeled you in. But like, what is there, what is the appeal to Morelia over some of the other species in your head? You know, just in working with them, 
so they're not a freaky snake. Like we have a bull, <laughs> like I have a bull snake, and okay. I have oh, that yeah. for educational outreach because bull snakes are all over Colorado, and people don't understand they're not a rattlesnake. And I got this bull snake um, so that I could say, "Come look at this snake. It's not a rattlesnake. This is what it looks like. Look how nice it is." But you know, it's hyper. It's mm-hmm. hyper, and it's hard to get it to calm down and focus, like if I'm trying to train with it or I'm trying to, you know, it's just kind of out there. And carpet pythons are not dull, but they're also not um, hyper. They're not freaky. And I just see intelligence in their eyes. And so now trying all these different things with them, they haven't let me down. Um, and trying some of the training techniques with the other types of snakes it's not that they don't work. It's just the carpets seem to catch on so quickly. You know, I see them in, in comparison to other snakes as they probably have really high IQ. They're probably a pretty intelligent snake as compared to other snakes. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I like that. And I also see differences in personalities between the different subspecies. And so now that I have, I think I have all at least one of every subspecies that, um, that we can have, um, I see differences in them, and of course now favorites are emerging among those. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that happens. <laughs> you're like, you're yeah. like, I hate these, and then like you you gravitate more towards insert something. So you Absolutely. know, it's like how Eric drifted to pop ones because he's got issues, and then I drifted to the coastal. <laughs> so you know, like, yeah. Well, and we have, what, what we have a few on? other snakes here. You know, we have a few other snakes. We have a hognose snake. We have two corn okay. snakes. We have a children's python. Um, and, you know, they're okay, but I wouldn't have a whole bunch of them. Right. I just like the carpet pythons. And right now, I love the bread lie. Um, I love the inlands, and I love the pop ones. They're probably my top three. Oh, God. All right. Well, the bread lie I have to be top, okay with. Really. They were my yeah. favorite until I got my first bread lie. Gosh, I love them. They're amazing. They're really amazing, and they have a personality that um, clicks with mine very well. So can you give us an overview of your collection? Like, what are we looking at? How, like, and and include the animals that are also in the the study. Like, you know, how big, how many animals, and what are we looking at? So I have 17 bread lice. And, um, Jesus. <laughs> they're all, I'm, because I have them and because the study is a simple behavior study, just, mm-hmm. we have this many bread lie and we're tracking how much time they do what, um, right. they can all be in it because I'm not trying to do a specific thing with an individual one. And so, um, 10 of them are 2018 babies. And I really thought that was a good number to have that were all the same age to compare to, to be able to say eight of 10 babies prefer ledges over perches, you know, 10 out of 10 babies spend more than 60% of their time arboreally versus on the ground. Um, And then I also wanted to have a group of older animals because sometimes behavior and temperament changes as the animals age. And right now I have seven that are between ages two and five, and I would really like to get another older one, but I can't believe how hard that is to find. Mm. Um, You know, everybody's got young ones. Um, so I'd like to get at least one more sub-adult or adult, and then somebody says I'm on their list for two 2019 babies. If um, they have, I have no idea who that would be. <laughs> I mean, like there's there's somebody that might have to just continue to keep pushing bread lie that way. Um, however, however, yeah. all of my 2018 babies, I set up all of these identical enclosures for, so I could 
track, you know, how much time they're doing what, but they're all the same. So, so there's not like one's not getting more heat than the other or has a different kind of ledge than the other. And so that That's it cool. just makes the study more uniform, except, uh-huh. except the two that I got from you because they're oh. too big for <laughs> the enclosures that have the rest of the 2018 babies in them. They're in three Crap. by two by two enclosures. <laughs> Well, why does that wait. not surprise me? But no, let's, let's hold on here. I mean, like, they, she got them as hatchlings. Like, I didn't go nuts with them. Like, you know, mm. it's they were just I big babies. I don't know what they Ravens weighed have... as hatchlings. I mean, Owen says uh, they're eighteen babies, but they are as large know. as some. As at least one of the twenty seventeen babies I have. Um, well, I mean, they're about one hundred and eighty grams right now, and the other eight are all around um, between about fifty and a hundred grams. Damn! Damn! <laughs> so I'm not sure. I just, oh, all right. I may have broken the bread line. I don't know. Oh, Owen. Fine. You started them on uh, hoppers. <laughs> so, baby bread lie, or in my experience, hatchling bread lie are so nervous or don't are so reluctant to strike a frozen thaw that I give uh-huh. them live. And the problem is, is that if you throw a live fuzzy in there, half the time they really don't care. So I try to get mice that are right on the cusp of a fuzzy to a hopper, like they're just starting to move around like a hopper. Uh-huh. And that's what I feed them, and that's what they get started on. So, well, I mean, they're large. <laughs> all right, whatever. <laughs> so, some what? of the ones I got, I I have a set of twins in the study, and and they're very small because they were twins. Twins. They're yeah. forty two grams, and they're still on, uh, like, fuzzies. They're about to go up to wow. small hoppers. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, so well, anyway, <laughs> that's the bread lie, and then I have Big three problem. inland carpets. Um, and I really like them. Like now that I have yeah. them, I don't know why they're not more popular because they're just they're right? just a fantastic snake. I mean, they're right. beautiful. Yeah. They're just super nice. They're super easy yeah. to handle. Um, they're just nice snakes. And so you got those inlands from Justin, right? Or, I did. Okay. And beautiful. I need, they're I gorgeous. Them from Justin. And mm-hmm. I actually won a voucher. Won his voucher in the Southeast Carpet Fest auction that I still need to use. So I'm probably going to be putting that towards a, a fourth mm. inland. But the one nice. on his website I want, he has holdback written on. So mm, jerk. I know. Of it's like, why are you putting it on your for sale page with a big HB on it? Like, That's just, just don't even put it on there. It is mean. Yeah, just don't tell us. Hey, I, I just don't put them on the website. Like that's Yeah, all. you guys just don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. So I'm I have to get with you. him. <laughs> yeah, so I have to get with him about putting that voucher towards another one. And then uh, I have eight Pop One carpets, mm-hmm. formerly known as IJs. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them is from you, Eric. Mm-hmm. Oh. And he is the first one that I tried this with. I... I set him up in a baby tub, you know, because I always ask, what are what are they in? Because I want to do a gradual, smooth transition that's as non-stressful as possible. So I set right. him up in his baby tub, and then I thought, well, you know what? What if I just take this baby tub and put it in what's going to be his normal enclosure and cut right. a hole in the top? And mm-hmm. then he can come out as he wants to over time and explore this bigger space, and that's worked phenomenally well. Um, it's worked really great. That's so a that's I, a good idea. 
Yeah. yeah, and and I actually have done it with another snake since then, and it it works really well. So I'll probably utilize that technique more. I mean, okay. it's nothing to just make a hole in the top of the tub and stick it in whatever the adult enclosure is going to be. It's easy. Right, now right. Now yeah. has what it's used to. It still has the security, but as it feels comfortable, it can self-habituate to the new surroundings. And that's really what you want to do is allow that passive habituation to happen and not force it into a situation where it's terrified. Right. That would that would potentially be very easy, especially with um, going from racks to cages. If you mm-hmm. just stick a lid on their bin and then stick it in the cage for a bit, I mean, yeah, that would not be that hard to really kind of transition. No, it it made it really easy for the couple of snakes I've done that with. And then I have one jungle and a jungle cross, and those are the two that I'm doing a lot of training with. The the pure jungle is the one I've done all the target training with, and then the um, mm-hmm. jungle cross I'm doing station training with. And he he will he's trained to station, which means if I put a uh, secondary tub outside of his enclosure and open the doors, he sees it, and he, he will shift himself down into it um, from his enclosure into that one. And then I give him a food reward, and then um, – he goes back on his own sometimes, but sometimes he'd rather stay out, and then I put him back. So um, I don't know. That yeah. works out well, and it minimizes handling stress. That is okay. cool. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of zoos do that, and it's it's good with venomous species or species that, you know, you can't handle for safety reasons or for animals that are still too afraid of you handling them, then it's an easy – if you can teach them to shift on their own, that makes it – non-stressful um mm-hmm. and then i do have two coastals which i shied away from getting coastals in the beginning because you know why because Size. i just kept seeing those words in print that said the largest subspecies of carpet <laughs> yeah that is 10 feet rock. 13 feet right, and yeah. i thought oh my gosh i don't want a coastal like i'm and i had some um coastal babies offered to me at a really decent price for the cohab study that i'm doing and i thought uh eh, I just don't know because what if they get too big? Like I just envisioned them getting too big and I couldn't manage them. So, um, right. But but the local breeder I got some of the pop ones from. I I went to a show and met up with him to pick up a, a pop one baby and he had this adult coastal for sale, and I said that's an adult, and he mm-hmm. said yeah that's an adult and I took him out and handled it. and he's exactly six feet long, really docile, really nice and I was like, well. If you don't sell them during the weekend, let me know, and I'll meet you, and I'll take them. And so I did. That's Hank. And unfortunately, um, he was seven when I got him. I've had him going on a year, and he just had cancer surgery. Oh, yeah, so unfortunately, I saw that. he is going to have to retire from um, the outreach that he was doing. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was a coastal that I got because I already knew his adult size. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to work with that subspecies and see what they were like. And so the second one I got by accident, um, you know, I, re- okay. I really try to support the community and try to support science. And the Southeast Carpet Fest auction was going towards nidovirus research. So right, I right. bid on several auctions, either as the first bidder or one of the real low bidders, trying to help bump the bids up. And somehow I won this voucher from Rad Reptiles <laughs> right. for almost nothing. I mean, I can't believe how cheap people are sometimes. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so I said, well, what have you got? And he had, like, some colubrids, which I didn't want, and then he had these coastals. And I said, well, that one's pretty. You know, I like that one. I'll, I guess I'll use the voucher toward it. And I have him here. And um, 
I like him. He's really pretty. He's easy to manage. I haven't had any issues with him. Um, he seems mellow, so I might groom him for outreach if he continues to be as nice as he is and he can, um, you know, kind of fill Hank's shoes. Right. That's, well, that's very cool. cool. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm wondering how much that people are turned off by Coastals from reading how big they get. I would say it's something that I have to deal with a lot. Because yeah. they're like, that's the one's going to get 10 feet. I'm like, no. Well, look, listen, humans have the capacity of being nine feet tall. None <laughs> of us really are. There might be right. one dude that is. Like, you right. know, it's like, yeah. But if you look at it, that's something we could do. Like, it just depends on well, what you do. To be honest, I think my bread so, lie are bigger than some of my coastals. Well, yeah. I know some th- of the bread lie that I have. Probably the t- the ones I got from you are going to be way bigger yeah, than no. that coastal. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I'm beginning to see a trend here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the male, the adult male I got from you, Owen, in your defense, is not a big mm. snake. Man, I don't, he might True. be six feet, but maybe mm-hmm. not quite. I think he's just under, and I realize he may grow a little bit, but he's not. To me, he doesn't seem like a big snake. No, no, I, I don't think he was very that that much that big when he was. With so, me, or for that little bit that he was with me. Girls, I don't know. But then I have one diamond that's just a pet, and that's just you know, I wanted I wanted to experience at least all the subspecies and and learn what they were about and how they behaved and how they were to work with. So I have one diamond that came from um, Greg Heim. Yeah. Uh, and then I have the four undocumented carpets, mm-hmm. and then I have um, four rainbow boas, two corn snakes, a western hognose, a bull snake, and the children's python. So quite okay. a lot of snakes, but when you compare their care and their, to me, I'm comparing their care and expense to horses and, and dogs and the other animals I've worked with for so long, um, mm-hmm. they're much easier to care for, much lower maintenance, and much less expensive because horses are super <laughs> expensive. And I am, the animal sanctuary that I run is an equine sanctuary. And we do okay. take in other species on a case-by-case basis, but it's primarily for equines, and it's it's extremely expensive to maintain. And so when wow. I compare that, like say compare taking care of 50 horses to 50 snakes, um, it's nothing. The cost oh, wow. is nothing to me. Yeah, we spend thousands a month to take care of the horses, and you know, I don't know how much I spend a month on rodents, but a couple hundred bucks, 300 bucks maybe, and to me. That's right. a huge difference. Right. Well, yeah. And so yeah. as I'm getting older and as I'm retired now, you know, I, definitely shifting over to the snakes is probably a good move because in 20 years, I probably can't be taking care of all these horses anymore. You know, right. with a snake, that's pretty easy to take care of. True. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it seems like uh, that they, they're becoming more and more popular for that reason. Like somebody wants a snake or wants a pet that, you know, they can kind of keep and it's not going to be too expensive and it's not like you yeah. have to, you know, I got to get a dog sitter when I go away. The snake, right. yeah, you could, right. you could go like, away yeah. overnight. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you yeah, can leave fine. them. I mean, and maybe just have someone check that your lighting and heat hasn't gone awry, but mm-hmm. what other animal can you feed once every couple of weeks? You know, right. can you spot clean the cage every now and then? I mean, these other these mammals you're cleaning daily multiple times a day you're feeding them multiple times a day you can't go leave um without getting a, a sitter to come take care of them um the only thing i would say to people i think they're a great pet 
Um, and you can still enjoy them while doing something else. Like I'm watching all mine now while I'm doing this interview. You know, I can sit and be with them while I'm doing other things, whereas like dogs and cats want to get in your space and they want to <laughs> sit on you and they want attention from you. The snakes don't. But if you're looking right. for a pet that you can hold and cuddle, you know, that's not a snake. Like that's not what right. a snake is about. And so then maybe you need to look into getting a different kind of pet. If, that's, if mm-hmm. your expectations are that you're going to hold it a lot and interact with it a lot and dress it up and put it on a leash, that's not a snake. So right. <laughs> don't recommend no, that's, that. Well, incorrect. Yeah. <laughs> no. Well, I think you have to have, you know, r- realistic expectations of whatever kind of animal you're going to get. And um, do your research first. Mm-hmm. Right. For sure. Um, so I was going to say, before we jump into, you know, the different studies that you've done, I was just curious on, like, maybe you could give us some insight on how do you even start something like this if you wanted to do it yourself? Like, right. you just come so, up with something that you want to know and then... Yeah, so there's different ways that people do studies. So mm-hmm. sometimes people will do a study as part of a company um, or an organization, like a club um, is going to do a study about something. Like let's say the Dog Obedience Club is going to do a study about something. Or you work for a, a pharmaceutical company that's going to do a study. Or you may work at or be a student at a college or a university and you get into the study that way. But lots of people now are doing studies on their own, just through their own company or just privately. Um, uh-huh. And you have to be able to obviously fund that and have a place to do that. And then there's a lot of citizen science going on where somebody is like the pivot point for the study, but people all over the world are sending them information. And Mm -hmm. so there's just so many ways to do science now. It's really, really exciting. And so what you need to do to start is have a question that you want to answer or a hypothesis that you want to test. And then you just follow the scientific method. And you just want to make sure that the experimental conditions that you're applying, especially if you're doing a study on snakes, is appropriate to the species you're studying. So, for example, an older study that I found um, that was done on a species of uh, neuroidea, so an aquatic snake, they were doing the study under terrestrial conditions. Mm-hmm. And then wondering yeah, like, why they were getting the results <laughs> they got. And I'm like, that was Why stupid. won't this work? Uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So you have to make sure <laughs> that the study conditions are going to meet the natural biology and natural history of the species you're studying. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then you're going to want to set up parameters. So for whatever, let's say you want to study what kind of substrate a species of snakes prefers over another. Now I can just tell you, like, I'm not studying this, but I don't think carpets could care less about what kind of substrate they have. (laughs) Like, I would agree. I would also agree. They're just not on the ground that much. They're just not. Okay. But let's say that you want to study substrate with a fossorial species, like a Western hognose. So you'd have to start with an enclosure, let's say a six foot enclosure, divide the bottom into two foot sections with just like a one or two inch barrier to keep the substrate separate. And maybe you put reptile carpet in one part, aspen bedding in one part, and echo earth or something in one part. And everything right. else would have to be identical. So you, you would have like three mini identical enclosures and same lighting, same heat, same hide, same water in the same positions. The only difference would be the substrate. And then you just need to sit back and record like how much time the snake spends in what type of substrate 
to get an idea of their preference. And so, um, like maybe the western hognose spends 80% of the time in the aspen bedding, no percent of the time on the reptile carpet, and you know 20% of the time in the echo earth. Mm-hmm. Um, then you could tell keepers, well, you know what, you, you know probably you want to go with some kind of st- substrate like this. And I just pulled that. I don't know what kind that the yeah. herodons prefer. I just use that as an example of how right. you could do a study. Um, and that's a simple study that you could do pretty easily at home or with a club or organization or even a citizen science project. So let's say you get 50 people from around the country that all set their one hog nose up like that, and then you all correlate your data. Now instead of the data on one snake, you've got data on 50. And that's how citizen science works, and that's why that's so neat because you get a much larger N number, the number of animals you're studying when you do it that way, than if you try to maintain a study collection on your own. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I remember back in uh, this was going back to the Morelia Python forums. Remember Owen that we were talking about doing something like that. I think Ben was involved. Remember it was like trying to there come up with people. yeah that question. They, of, like we yeah. would come up with a question that we would want to answer, and then that year we would you know, but well, yeah, somehow it never got off the ground. Giant- well, the the idea was because we're all here, we all have a giant collection, so the sample size is huge. Right. So, you know, why aren't we using it? And it kind of, unfortunately, that kind of came about towards the end of yeah. Uh, and that the forum. was, and then when the when the forum folded, everybody kind of lost touch with it. But I think the closest would be there was when Nick did he was doing a twin study, and he basically just ran around yelling at people where I need your data on your clutches for the year. <laughs> Especially yeah. if you hatch twins, and right. then I hatch twins, and I'm like, look, twins, and then like I think like my email, like my text, like he was just blowing me up because data, data, data. I'm like, I didn't do any of it. He's like, do it now. I'm like, all right. So you know. But well, that and that's the that's the other requirement you have to think of. It's fun to watch snakes. Like, I love watching them, and I even love journaling about them and writing stuff down about them. But then at some point, you have to correlate all that data and pull usable information out of all your notes and that's what's yeah. a pain yeah you know? it is and that's what's no fun to do yeah like, how do you like say for instance you wanted to see uh, you know how often uh, a carpet was using a perch um is there a certain okay. amount of times that you would check that or yeah so i've been doing okay. this on and off with the bread light because i have an intern starting with me at the end of August or beginning of September. And I want to make sure that I have the behavior list dialed in and how I want her to collect the data by the time she starts. So I've tried it a few different ways and just taken random samplings. Mm. And so I've got a behavior list, like an ethogram where I've just got behaviors listed. So like a very simple one would be um, perching or or on perch or shelf, um, on ground, in hide, um, out of view or, you know, swimming or something, let's say. And so mm-hmm. then I've just taken random amounts of time and said, okay, for the next 12 hours, every half hour, I'm going to look at each individual snake and mark down what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I've done that five times now just randomly to see how things flow, and I've changed the behavior inventory a little bit each time because I'm trying to make it – um, pertinent, but I also want it to be simple. I don't want to make it too complicated. Right. And so, right. Um, so the the one I just did one. The, I've done two twelve 
two 12-hour periods of time, a three-hour period of time, a 20-hour period of time, and an eight-hour period of time. And so what you would do, um, so let's say that 12-hour period of time, every half hour you go to each snake, and they each have their own form, and you just mark what they're doing on perch, you know, or in hide, or climbing and locomoting. And then at the end of that time, you figure out the percentage of time that individual snake spent doing that behavior. And then you take all 17 of those sheets and you average them together. And so I can tell you the one thing that has st- that's standing out, though, even though these are just little trials and me testing things out, is the clear standout is over 60% of the time, all 17 bread lie are arboreal. And right. they use shelves more than perches. If given the preference of a shelf or ledge and a, like a PVC perch, they are on the shelf or the ledge. Like they may drape their tail or part of their body over the perch, but they're mostly on the ledge. And some of them stay, some, some of them almost live on that ledge. Like some of them divide their time between they'll go in the hide some and then they'll go on the ledge some. And I have a couple that just, they're always on their ledge. Now the two, um, the two standouts, it's weird, that think they're chondros and use <laughs> <laughs> sit on the perch all the time like chondros are the two striped bread lie. I have two striped bread lie, and both uh-huh. of those use the perch and coil up on there like a chondro. And I'm like, why are you doing that? Like the now, other 15 are on their shelf. Why are you doing this? That's so weird. <laughs> now, is that – you think maybe that's just because they're tiny? Like you, you think maybe they'll grow out of that as they get I don't, bigger? I mean, or... I, I have other – ones their same size that aren't doing that. I don't know. And I'm not really trying to cool. answer that question. It's just sort of a something that's come up. Yeah. Um, as sort of a an interesting aside from what I was I, trying to see. I wonder if you were to like get perching of the adequate like anchorage, like size, like able to support them, if they would do this their entire lives. I don't know. That's so this cool think about it. Like you know, I, I would be like, well, that's something to study right there. Like, I would branch off so many times it'd be ridiculous. And you have so, to be careful about that. Like, yeah. I have to focus on. I really just want to be able to tell new keepers. You know, write your like, you know, those little books they sell on like care of your ball python, care of your corn snake. If I was writing one that said care of your bread lie, you know, it mm-hmm. would just be able to say basic things. Give it a shelf. You know, give it a ledge. Because it used, you know, I just want to be able to know what this species is going to prefer over other things. So if someone can't afford to put a zillion things in the enclosure, these are the staples. Like, these are the things mm-hmm. that your bread lie minimally needs to be able to express natural behaviors. Right. Right. And I would definitely say a shelf or a ledge. And then if you can't provide that, a perch, because they want to be up high. But something that has surprised me because I never would have thought this, is they use all 17 of them use humidity boxes. And really? everything I yes. And I did not plan to give them those, and I didn't – I was shocked when one started using it because everything you read is, you know, they live in a dry area. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't even think about giving them a humidity box, but I had made one on a video or something, and it was extra, and I threw it in with one of them. And said, oh, it'll be a novel item for her to explore. And she started using it, like, a lot. So then I gave huh. each, all of them a humidity box, and they use it 10% of the time. 10% of the time. That's a pretty good chunk of time that says you should 
probably give them one, and they're easy to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but the what only no no one ever says that except for on um, Justin Julander's site in his bread like care sheet. Right. He says, I do provide an area of increased humidity for the snakes to use if they need it. And this can be accomplished by providing a hide area with slightly damp green or sphagnum moss. He's the only one other than me that I've ever heard say that about bread lye. But, but it's not just like a couple are doing it. All 17 use it. Usually right before and right after they shed or if they get too hot, they'll go inside it. Now, are you mm-hmm. offering a, a regular hide and then a humidity box? Yep. Too. Uh huh. Okay. That's right. so cool. All right. And like so, like Benu, the adult bread light I have from Owen, he he has uh, not that he's spoiled or anything, but he has <laughs> a regular hide and a humidity hide on both the warm end and the cool end of his enclosure. So he can choose dry or moist on either end of the enclosure. Um. And I would say that's probably ideal, like if you have a long enough enclosure. Right. But they use them. And that surprised me. I didn't expect that. And that's an example of you don't always get the results you expect when you're doing a study. Well, honestly, and I said this on the show, like if you listen back years ago, I kind of like, you know, pushed away from the whole idea of humidity for carpets because they never seemed to need it like other pythons that I cared for did. Um, right. mm-hmm. but when we went to Australia, it was humid. I mean, it was really <laughs> humid. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it made me rethink that, you know? Well, um, from a keeping standpoint, trying to keep humidity is a pain. And so I have four rainbow boas and you know, they live in high humidity, but I don't right. humidify their enclosures. They have humidity right. boxes. All my snakes now have a humidity box with damp sphagnum moss in it. It's cheap to do. It's easy to do. You toss it in there. They use it if they want, and if they don't use it, it's no, you know, it's no skin off my back, and sure. it's there if they want it. And those rainbow boas are hardy, healthy, shed properly, eat great, are acting like they should. And I don't, I don't. And Colorado's dry. We have like twenty, thirty percent humidity. Yeah. So they use their humidity box, and that's it, and they're doing just fine. Hmm. So I don't, I don't necessarily think that you need to be, I don't know, maybe for a chondro or something, but the yeah, humidity just, boxes for the snakes that I'm working with work fine because if, if they don't need it, they don't use it. And I right. make it moist and I leave it in there until it dries out and then I re-moisten it again. Because I, there... I guess some, some snakes will stay in it too much and then they get too wet, you know, and their right. scales start to rot. So I let it dry out and then I add water again and so there's just that cycle of it starts out damp and then it dries out and then i make it damp again and they hmm. all do just fine now the ones that a... don't use it that surprise yeah. me uh-huh. are the coastals i thought oh. coastals, <laughs> don't they love water like they live on the coast uh they don't at least hank the adult i've had for almost a year he drinks water but he he won't get in his humidity box he doesn't swim I tried to soak him one night when he wasn't feeling well, and he just wasn't having it. He's like, nope, mm-hmm. I don't want the Get water. Get out of here. Yeah. Now, the baby I've seen in his water a couple of times, so I don't know if that's typical. Maybe, you know, Owen, you know if they like water or not. They love it. I mean, it's like I've had – I've it's it's hit or miss. 
either they want nothing to do with it or it's that one coastal that will constantly climb in its water bowl. And you're like, will you stop like soaking, like stay out of the water for 24 hours, please. <laughs> like there's, there's that kind of stuff. Like I have um, two caramel het Xanax that I produced a male and a mm-hmm. female male doesn't give two shits about the water female. I have to dump her water out and give her like two or three days without water just so she doesn't soak in it constantly. Wow. So it, it, it's nuts. Like sometimes I will, because she'll flood her cage, I'll take everything out and I'll let everything dry out and let her dry out. And then I'll put like the tiniest little bit of water in there for her to drink mm-hmm. and she'll still be in the water wow. dish. So I'm like, I don't, yeah, something about her. Well, She's weird. I think <laughs> so. that's why it's important for us to try to recognize the individual preferences of the snakes mm-hmm. and of the species as a whole as well because – what we think they need maybe isn't what they actually need. Like right, we need right. to try to do our best to ask them what they need because our assumptions are wrong a lot of the times. True. You know, yeah. Like my jungle is a swimmer. She loves to swim. She'll swim every night. And so, you know, she has a big, huge swimming thing in her enclosure, and she swims in it. She loves to swim. She's the only snake I have that swims. Now, why? Now, I, your, I don't know why. All your I mean, pop ones, they don't soak. No, they don't, and they don't use their humidity boxes either. All of mine do. Really? All of them. <laughs> yes, all of them. And I've heard wow. that from other people too. For a while, I was like, "Oh no, do I? Is there mites or something?" Like <laughs> something broken. Me nervous, yeah. you know. <laughs> and you know, I would go, and I, I, I don't know. I, I even talked to Nick about it, and he said that he experienced the same thing. Um, I mean. I've seen them occasionally, like here and there, hit or miss. They'll like maybe be in their humidity box here or there, or maybe mm-hmm. get in the water once here or there. But it's not a regular thing for them at all. Not hmm. mine. Not and the one I got from you. He's never hmm. used his humidity hide. <laughs> wow, that's weird. He just doesn't care. So yeah. I, you know, I don't yeah. know. Hmm. Um, Interesting. That's why I think being able to recognize what the snake's telling us is important because it might need Mm. something other than what we think it needs. But I also think there's, it doesn't hurt to offer them all these things. I mean, really, when you think of a snake enclosure, how hard is it to give them a big water dish and a humidity box and a hide and a shelf and then let them choose if they want to use the stuff or not, you know, give them the choice and control over how they use their environment because they're in a cage. I mean, they're never going to be able to go out in the wild and do right. what they want and go where they want. And so we might as well give them as much choice and control over the enclosure they're in as we possibly can. That's what I think. That's what I try to do. Sure. I agree. Yeah. Now, I'm totally. um, before we get into any of your studies, I'm curious, have you experimented at all with UV? I am. Yeah, I have um, put UV on three of the carpets. Mm-hmm. Three of the bread lie have UV, and the diamond has it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I don't – they're not seeking it out. Is that what you mean? And I'm not keeping track of no, just watching. Right. Um, and I don't know that it's made a difference in, like, their color or right. their feeding or anything like that. However, all of my rooms have a lot of natural light in them. And oh, so okay. I don't know that me adding the UV lamps to their enclosures made that much of a difference from what they're used gotcha. to because I have huge windows and all the rooms, huge windows and or skylights and all the rooms where I have the snakes and they're, uh-huh. they're getting the natural sun. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So, 
so it's possible that by me adding those UV lamps, it really didn't change that much for them. Right, right. You know, the hmm. diamond, I have him in a room by himself, and I, I definitely have it for him. Um, you know, I just set him up how Greg told me to set him up, and he's doing fine. Right. But basically, I have UV and heat on during the day, and then right. at night, I have it on a timer where everything just shuts off, and he just isn't right. getting anything at night. Gotcha. And, you know, he's doing fine. Yeah, you know, that's the huh? thing that uh, a lot of people talk about not putting um, – I've talked about this on the show where I'm trying to give – my approach with diamonds is I want to kind of give them that spotlight type of thing rather right. than uh-huh. a heat panel or something like that because mm-hmm. I noticed that – I don't know. They just seem to like that more. It seems to attract them more. Um, than... The one I have uses it about mm-hmm. half – and then about halfway through the day, he goes down to a lower lower level and gets in a hide. But okay. for several hours early in the day, he's under that basking lamp. Yeah. You know, just sitting there. Yeah, my, I, I, I've said it on the show, but the, before, they just seem to know when that light's going to come on. And they, mm-hmm. they're out there ready to, to bask, like almost right. like in the morning time, you know. And then they'll do it right before the light's going to go off. Sometimes, depending on you know the temperature around, they might do it in the in the midday. But for the most mm-hmm. part, throughout the daytime, they're kind of hidden. And then it's nighttime, and it's cold. I mean, it's like seventy, maybe seventy degrees in the uh-huh. room, and they're just out and about, ready. Yeah, food, mine's out, ready at to night. go. <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's how mine is too. Yeah, and he's hmm. really smart. Like I started target training him just for fun, and he caught onto that super quickly he'll follow that target anywhere he followed it out of his enclosure the other night when i wasn't ready for him to and he fell on the floor because i didn't have his little platform set up but he saw the target and he just went towards it and he fell out so then i put the target down on the floor and he followed it all the way to where i had his little box set up oh wow and then he got a food reward Target training, like I guess I don't know what what were you hoping to find with that, and you know, tell us about your, you know, just your experiences with it. So I didn't set out to do that. That was totally by accident. I didn't set out to. Tra- I'd never thought about training the snake, but I got right. this jungle baby from Charlotte Sims uh, Johansson. That uh-huh. and I'm not really into jungles, and I hadn't really seen any that appealed to me too much. But for some reason, I saw this one, and I'm like man, I just really like that one. Mm-hmm. So I got it from her. And um, she's reactive to things. She was overreactive to things, like over the top, scared, frightened, terrified, reactive to any time she was out of her tub. And then I was listening to old episodes of NPR, and that you interviewed Charlotte. And I'm listening uh-huh. to the interview. Yes. And you guys are kind of talking about how jungles have a reputation for being mean and She's talking about this jungle battery that she said glared at her every time she walked by the enclosure, and it bit her in the <laughs> face. And I'm thinking, right. okay, well, that's Vedra's mom. Like, I'm already having all these issues with her being terrified of everything. And, I mean, to to the point of evacuating her bladder and bowels. And um, just she oh. she was just over the top about anything other than just sitting in her tub. And I thought, okay, well. I, I'm not going to have this. Like, this her gen, 
her mom bit somebody in the face. Like I was flash forwarding in the future. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't. This is not the relationship I want with my snake, and I certainly don't want her to be afraid all the time. What you know? What can I do? And so the first thing I did was just leave her in the tub for a while and brainstorm like what my plan was going to be. And so um, because she even did something I've never seen any other snake do, this she was sitting in her tub one day, and I was just going to take her out to clean, and I touched her either with my hand or the hook, and she was sitting on one. I kind of have double perches so they can drape over two at once. So mm-hmm. she was sitting in one spot coiled, and then the next thing I knew, she's sitting in another spot coiled, and I thought, what did she just do? Like, she just teleported from that spot to that spot, which has mm-hmm. happened. And so I – and she had, did it a second time later, and I thought, what, what is that? And it's called saltatory locomotion, and I'd never heard of it. It lapids, I guess, do it. And mm-hmm. other snakes do it when they're super, super scared. And they can take, like, kind of every muscle in their body and push off a surface at once and literally jump off the ground from one spot into another. And she did that without breaking her coils. And, you know, unfortunately, it's an indication of fear. And I I just felt horrible. (laughs) So I left her in the tub for a while. um, And I said, okay, I think the best thing to do is to do passive desensitization, where I set her up in an environment where it's in a busy place, like I'm going to be moving around and walking around it a lot, but where she can retreat when she wants to. Like she has, she doesn't have to be involved in all the commotion. So mm-hmm. I got this 24 by 24 by 24 cube from Neodesha um, mm-hmm. that's all enclosed except like a plexiglass square on the front. And I put it next to the door to my snake room that. I knew I was going to be walking in and out of all the time. And when I'm wor- working in the snake room, like that cage faces all the activity. And I put her in there. And then I put in like some barriers and some hides and some foliage. And so she could choose to be near the window or not. Right. And in fact, the first several days, I told my husband, I think she's gotten out somehow. You know, I don't see her in here. He says, Lori, there's no way that she can get out of this. It has, like, three latches. I guess it used to be used for venomous snakes at one, one time, this particular mm-hmm. type of enclosure. Yeah, those neos, has, yeah. Like, there's no way that she can get out of this. And I'm like, well, I don't see her anywhere in here. So, <laughs> you know, logic is telling me she's just hiding, but then you start to worry. So um, I, like, shined a light through this vent, and I saw a little glimpse of black and yellow, and I'm like, okay, she's in there. Well, then she started coming and perching on this tree thing near the window a lot and I'd see glimpses of her when I would walk by she'd dart to the back and then one day she didn't one day she sat there and I'm like uh-huh. okay so I go up to the window and she just tur- turns her head inside her coil she doesn't leave you know mm-hmm. and then a few days later she doesn't even do that she just continues to look out and I thought okay well this is a lot of progress so then I unlatch one of the latches one day and she bolts to the back so I do that until she doesn't bolt, and I just keep this slow process going until I'm able to open the door and move around in front of her with her sitting there and not retreating. And I put a whole bookshelf together sitting in front of her enclosure one night with the door open, and she sat there and watched me. And when we got to that point, I thought, okay, now I need to figure out how to get her out because if I would reach in 
you know, I just sent her over the edge, and the hook sent her over the edge. And I was feeding her in the enclosure and not being able to clean it mm-hmm. because I'd have to forcibly remove her, and it would terrify her. So I was feeding her on this plate because I didn't want her to ingest substrate accidentally. So I mm-hmm. put the rodent on the plate and set the plate in there, and she would eat it. But then I started noticing she'd finish her meal and go back to where the plate was and get an ambush position above it, like hanging off of her purse. <laughs> <laughs> And she would stare oh, no, at that empty plate. She, uh, she knows like, what that means. All right, it's weird. Okay. So that's then awesome. no matter where I'd put the plate in the enclosure, she would get an ambush position above it, wait, like waiting for her meal. And I'm like, okay, this is something I can work with. And then one day when I went to feed her, I put the plate in. I went to put the rodent in, and then she looked at the plate. And then when I opened the door, she took the rodent off the tongs. Perfect. Perfect. So we did a couple of feedings like that, and I took the plate away. I set her a few times off the tongs, and then I taped the plate to a stick, and I Mm -hmm. thought, I wonder if she'll follow this out of her enclosure. So I put her old tub below the door to her existing one, and the old Mm -hmm. tub was just the same. You know, it had everything the same in it that it had in it when she was living in it, because I thought, well, if I ever have to have an emergency, I'll just put her back in this. Like, we, if we have to evacuate because of a fire or a flood or she has to go to the vet, she's used mm-hmm. to this tub. She used to live in it. I'm just going to leave it for her. So mm-hmm. she followed that target plate out of her enclosure and into the tub, and I fed her, and she ate, and I put the lid on, and I was able to, you know, of course, finally do this big enclosure cleaning. And I, I think I cried. I was so happy. <laughs> she did that with no stress to me, no stress to her. You know, she did it on her own, and that's that's how I dealt with her then for the next six months until one night um, we do that, and she strikes and grabs the food and then drops it. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. odd. Yeah. And then she did it a second time, and I'm like, that's really odd. And then she starts climbing around and exploring outside of her enclosure, like around the immediate area. So now she's challenging me to figure out when she actually wants to eat and when she wants to come out and explore because now she's starting to want to come out and explore. And Mm -hmm. so I just think that that's amazing. That's an amazing journey. And now instead of a snake that potentially was going to bite and be a wacko and be afraid, she's, she's turned into a confident animal that's easy for me to work with. But honestly, if we got no further than me just being able to get her to voluntarily come shift out of her enclosure, I would have been happy, you know, right. But now she's progressing further. Now she's doing some exploration. Now I can touch her. Now I can hold her without her being afraid. And, um, you know, that took about, you know, that was a long process, six to eight months to get. Well, now we're at over a year. So it was a year this June that I started the whole process. But it's worth it to me because she could live 20 years or live even longer. I hope she does. And it was worth the investment that I just made this past year to have an animal that I can have a good relationship now. She's not afraid. I can enjoy. Neither one of us are going to get hurt. Um, and I know not everybody's going to have the patience to do that, but right. uh, but that's, that's how I am with all of my animals, and I wasn't going to be different with the snake. But in mm-hmm. the beginning, I didn't set out to do that. It just sort of happened. And then other people started asking me about it, and I started seeing the posts about people having issues with their snakes, and I started making some suggestions. And then um, somebody that worked at that behavior journal asked me if I'd write an article. 
about the target training and the shift training I was doing, and it just it just kind of took on a life of its own, and I didn't set out to do it. It just happened. Gotcha. You know, and in the beginning, I said, Lori, you're an animal trainer. You train horses. You train dogs. I've trained feral. I've worked with feral horses and dogs. You can train mm-hmm. the snake. You know, it's a vertebrate, just like the rest of us. We all have the same basic vertebrate brain plan. It's not like it's an alien from another planet. You can do this. <laughs> right. So I just had to take a deep breath and work a little bit to figure out how to make it happen. And it, it's worked out. And now, you know, I'm using the same techniques on other snakes. And the other snakes, it seems so easy to do with because they're already not afraid to start with. It's, it is definitely very cool to kind of see more and more that training is being expanded to reptiles, like with shifting or yeah. feed stations and stuff like that. Cause it's like way less stress is awesome. You know, it, anything that you, I think animals would be happier, healthier and possibly even breed for like some of those harder species are just really right. easily stressed out species. And if you can just kind of minimize their stress, we might get some luck and that's awesome. So no, this I agree, cool. and I've found some things recently that I wish I had found last year. Mm. You know, like Lauren Augustine, she used to be the reptile keeper at the Smithsonian National Zoo, and now she works at the St. Louis Zoo. I had seen just like a magazine article about how she was training the water snakes to shift that she worked mm. with at the National Zoo, and I wanted to find that again, but this time when I like looked up her name, I found this whole research study that was done with her and some co-authors in 2012 about using shift training, using target training, using station training um, on zoo reptiles, including snakes, um, yep. for veterinary procedures and stuff. And I'm thinking, well, I wish I like found that last year because <laughs> it would have been helpful. <laughs> it would have right. been great to know. Yeah. It's... Yeah. That would have been good to know last year, but I'm, I'm happy to see. So it, it's not really a new thing. I want to say mm-hmm. the last 10 to 15 years, but I think it's new that people are paying attention to it. And it's new right. that people in the private sector are trying it, like private keepers are trying it. And now some of these training groups I belong to are being more open to training reptiles and not just dogs and cats, you know, and yeah. horses. It would you make know. things a lot easier if um, I could get my Timor pythons to you know, get out of my way and let me clean their cage as opposed to like, you know, uh, getting mad at me for entering their territory. So that'd be well, great to and, that. Yeah. <laughs> and when you think about it, I mean, that is their territory and they're expressing yeah. territoriality, which is a hundred percent a normal innate behavior. I mean, yeah. they're not doing anything wrong. You're going into their space and they're yeah, telling I usually, you, this is my get space. Out. Yeah. Get out. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I, I wait till they're sleeping now and then move their entire hide box and then clean and put it back. That's but the ticket. After that, they tend to be like, what just happened? And they fly out of their box and then they uh, I have these and I'm two, like, yeah. yes, I have these two Darwins and mm. only two Darwins, probably the only two Darwins I will ever have. Ever. They haven't <laughs> given me a good impression of that subspecies. Right, and right. Um, they're wild. And so that's how I work with I wait till they're in a hide I move the whole hide and I do what I need to do and I put the hide back it's like a little transport shuttle for them mm-hmm. because I'm not going to stress them I don't want to stress me it's easier just to do it that way and eventually maybe one day they'll calm down I mean 
they used to strike out a lot at like my husband and I walking by or if I would open the door to try to get him out. Um, yeah. They never bit because I obviously I watch the behavior signals and I and I don't get in a position where that's going to happen. But they're not doing that anymore. Um, and now they actually will come towards me. Um, but if they figure out I don't have food, then they bolt and <laughs> try to get away. Yeah, and they'll fly. <laughs> like I didn't know snakes could fly, but those Darwins can fly. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and so I just wait till one of them's in till they're in their hides and then i i just cover the opening and and everybody's safe that way and then they're not stressed and i'm not and that's Mm -hmm. okay i mean you don't have to handle your snakes i mean people have venomous snakes and don't handle them so just because it's a carpet python doesn't mean you have to handle it i know that everybody wants to handle their snake you don't really have to in order to care for them right you don't yeah I mean, it's I, people want to be able to touch it or play with it. It's it's perfectly fine to just leave it be. <laughs> I think I think the thing with the Darwins, in my experience, and uh-huh. I've worked with the different bloodlines, but the ones that are the non-head albinos are are yours head albino or no? No, these are normals that I got from Nick. Correct. Mm. They are so <laughs> close to wild snakes. <laughs> like. Uh-huh. <laughs> And it's 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 very interesting the difference between that type of carpet is like the one you would find in the wild as opposed right. to ones that have been you know bred multiple generations. There's a huge difference. I yeah, think. they act wild. They do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And they're just normals. I told Nick, you know, I want them for this behavior study. I just want a pair of normal Darwins, just n- nothing special. And he sent me these, and yep. they're they're wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're yeah. beautiful. They're beautiful yeah. snakes. But they're it's wild. Funny. <laughs> Rob, Rob was not this carpet fest, but the last carpet fest. He got he got he got bit pretty bad by ripped up by your Darwin's. Yeah. By the oh one God. male I had, and it was because, and I just I don't know I I guess I just never had the problem maybe I, I, and Rob's he's amazing with snakes so it's not like he doesn't know what he's doing but. Um, he's trying to get the snake to go back in, you know, and just kind of like you're just kind of touching its its body and then it just kind of moves like it's trying to just get away from you. But what they do is they would circle back and it just nailed them. <laughs> double, double round, and I, yeah. And I have it so high up and, you know, we're, oh, we're no. short little hobbits and, uh, you know, I've, re- I've rethunk that. <laughs> I've rethunk having it up so high, Never. you know. Never put the mean ones above your head. No. That just is asking for trouble. <laughs> no, yeah, no. yeah but, that's uh, kind of. Well, I mean, and I don't, I don't want to encourage people never to touch their snakes. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the 21st century, I think that you should be able to desensitize your snakes to handling and shifting mm-hmm. and transport. Because if you have to evacuate in an emergency, if they have to go to the vet. I mean, they're going to have to be physically examined. So I do think that your snake should be habituated to all of that handling, but it needs right. to be done gradually and slowly. And some may adapt to it very quickly within a few weeks, and some may take a few years. Right. What I am against is flooding, and I know a lot of snake people, a lot of other animal people will do flooding, and that's where you just continue to do what you're doing to the animal until they give up and they learn they either – 
learn what's something called learn helplessness, where you just keep doing the thing that they're afraid of or you keep doing the thing they don't want you to do and you ignore the, their warning and you do it anyway, and then they eventually just give up, and it's called learned helplessness. And that's not a way to build a relationship, and they're not going to ever trust you because you they've told you not to do something and you've done it anyway and continue to do it. Um, or you or the animal is going to get hurt because that fight-or-flight response is going to kick in and you're going to get torn up. And so right. I'm not an advocate of flooding, but I am an advocate for passive habituation and active habituation, which is pairing an unpleasant experience with a pleasant one. So like pairing the transport container or the shift box with food. So now mm-hmm. the snakes aren't afraid of it. Now they, they associate it with something positive, so they're willing to come out and be in it. And I just think if you ever have to evacuate or temporarily put that animal in it, it's going to be a lot less stressed if it's used to being in that box than if it's the first time you're sticking it in there. And if it associates it with a positive thing like food or heat yeah. or a hide, um, you know, then if it's lived in the same enclosure for five years and now you're grabbing it out and throwing it in a tub and driving it to a new location. I so. I love that you mentioned flooding because, I mean, going back to the Timor pythons, I, I told people that what I did was the hands-off hide boxes where I could, it's got a lid, and if they're in there, I can easily remove the whole box clean their cage uh-huh. and put them back. And the first comments on that were, I just told my Timor Python until it stops musking on me or until it calms down. And that's pretty much the accepted way of getting your snake to chill out is constant handling until it's stressing it out. <laughs> gives that, up. Yeah. I mean, that is literally changing its blood chemistry. So yeah. if you do that and then it needs blood work or something, it's going to totally skew that. But not to mention the mental distress that you're putting it through. I mean, that, that is, is awesome like that you're if saying I that. Um, let me think of a like a tame example to give because I can mm-hmm. think of some horrific ones having worked at the police department. But that's oh. like me assaulting <laughs> you and forcing you to do something. And saying, oh, eventually you'll come to like it. No, you won't. You're going to hate me. It's like, right. or, or five of us grab you and throw you into the swimming pool and hold you in the water and you don't know how to swim. Right. And we keep telling you, well, it'll be okay. You'll see. Well, no, it won't be okay. And probably now you're never going to try to swim because we just forced it on you. Right. You know? and, and so that's, that's what flooding is. It's, it's doing something to the animal and they don't have any choice or control over fleeing from it mm-hmm. you know and you can desensitize the animal through that passive habituation where you allow them to appro- snakes i know is do a lot of approach and retreat to novel items like they'll approach it retreat approach it retreat approach it retreat and then you'll see when they commit they'll just all of a sudden move forward towards it right um right and that's their way of assessing something and deciding whether they think it's a threat or not and, you know, you can habituate and desensitize using techniques like that or pairing scary stuff with positive stuff. But flooding's just horrific. Like, imagine if that's you being held down and forced to do something against your will. Sure. Um, and people will say, well, they're snakes. They don't think the same way we do. They don't have the same emotions we do. But uh, they do. And I have a whole bunch of studies sitting in front of me on reptile cognition that say that um, all vertebrates from reptiles on up to the birds and higher mammals feel pleasure and displeasure and fear and some other emotions. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I think you can see that in their behavior. We just don't pay attention to it, you know. And one of my right. favorite qu- quote right now is Carl Sassana wrote a book on um, the animal mind. And he says, you know, we can see brains. And we can. We can see that the reptile brain and the human brain and the bird brain and other brains of vertebrates, they all have the same basic parts, even though they have some differences. But we can't see minds. And he says that we can see the workings of the minds in the logic of behaviors. So basically, if we're watching the behaviors and we're thinking Mm -hmm. logically, well, what does that behavior probably mean? Then it probably means that. You know, we don't... We don't need to do an MR, an fMRI on the snake's brain to know if it feels pleasure or displeasure, if it's afraid or not. We can right. see its behaviors telling us it is. So I think I don't know why people with reptiles think that somehow we can do whatever they're ours to do with as we please because they're reptiles and they don't feel or they they don't have emotions or they I don't know I don't understand that. Mm-hmm. It's probably because they're so different than us. So we, you know, I mean, they're well, they don't have limbs. Yeah, a lot of it. Yeah. <laughs> they don't have yeah, limbs. They're not. That's true, and they lack the ability to to like use facial expressions. Mm-hmm. And they basically wear a suit of armor. Mm-hmm. And if you're wearing a suit of armor, you might be laughing or crying or stoic or I don't know. I can't tell. You know, you have a right. suit of armor on, and the snakes have these tough, tough scales to protect them from predators to protect them from the environment and they don't have intricate facial muscles to be able to do fine motor movements and and give us facial expressions but that doesn't mean they don't feel emotions just because Mm -hmm. you can't see it in their in their face doesn't mean that they don't have them and if you watch them enough you can see it you can see it um in their eye movement in their head movement in their tongue flicking in their general body language you can see if they're alert, if if they're not alert, if they're scared, if they're relaxed. I mean, there's other ways that you can read their body language, but I think their lack of facial expressions, not just snakes but all reptiles and birds and fish, makes it easy for people to think they don't have emotions. Right. Yeah. Is that what your behavior circle is is sort of about? Is that? Yeah, so I did a whole bunch of research on – um, snake body language because I wanted to be able to tell because I noticed all these little intricate things they do because I sit here and watch them all the time and I wanted right. to know well, what does that mean, what does this mean and I found a lot of recent sources because I think it's probably a recent thing that people are including this in uh, like veterinary medical texts and behavior texts and, and uh, training journals um, but basically that PDF I sent you is just mm-hmm. kind of a guideline of mm-hmm. body language that the snake's doing to be able to tell if they're relaxed and comfortable with what's going on. Like that green circle in the middle is their comfort zone. Right. And if they're doing those behaviors, they're they're comfortable. That's their comfort zone. They're okay with what's happening. And right. if they go to the, into the yellow circle, like they're on yellow alert, and you're stretching them out of their comfort zone, which isn't necessarily bad because They have to get stretched out of their comfort zone a little bit. We all do. Otherwise, we would never achieve anything. Otherwise, we would never accomplish anything. Sure. But what you don't want to do when you see that they're they're being stretched and they're 
they're being asked to do stuff that's out of their comfort zone and they start to tell you, okay, this is enough, then you need to stop and you need to back off and then you start again later or you start again in a few days. And by doing right. that, you're building trust with them. That when the animal tells you, don't, I don't want you to do this, and, I, and you back off and you do, then you're building trust with them. But if you don't back off, then they go into that red zone where they're having a severe stress reaction, where they may be evacuating their bowels, striking at you, um, playing dead if they're that kind of species that, you know, feigns death. But you're right. going to start seeing some really drastic behavior because they're so stressed and you've pushed them into that, um, that now they've stretching the limits of their comfort zone has now just gone over the top. And so really where you want to be when you work with your snake is you want them in the green zone. You want them relaxed. And right. then when you notice that they start to get into that yellow zone, um, then you back off. And you put them away for a little while, and then you come back to it later. You, you really never want them in the red zone where they're so stressed um, that they're trying to flee and they're getting away or they're feigning death or they're hissing or, or spitting or um, striking. I mean, that's pretty bad. Or musting. I mean, that's right. really, really smelly and gross, and, and, and that's, a, that's a, a reaction that means they're very scared and they feel really threatened. Now, obviously, in emergencies or exigent circumstances, like if you, you might have to just grab the snake out and go. House is on fire. Need to get the my collection out. Got it. <laughs> right. Or you we'll figure this out later. Be, yeah. And, you know, we'll build up trust later because you, yeah, you got to get out of here. Or, you know, uh, you just accidentally ingested part of your cage furnishings and you have to go to the vet and we're going. You know, if it's yeah. an emergency, fine. But if it's it's not an emergency that you hold your new snake the first day. You know, I see all these snakes oh my and God. I know people want to hold their snake. But they'll say, right. well, I've had my new snake three three days or I've had it five days and when's it going to stop biting me? Well, when it's not afraid of you anymore... That and it's, that's when it's going to stop biting you. What we we had we were on our way back from Daytona, and I sold a snake. What was it? The Saturday, and then we were on our right. way back from Daytona. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not Daytona. Um, Tinley. We're on our way back Tinley. from Tinley the Monday, and a guy calls me, and he's like, "I tried feeding my snake four times, and it won't eat." I'm like, "Are you serious? Like you had it for two days? <laughs> right? <laughs> Leave it alone." Wow. So, and and that's, that's a sign of stress. That refusal to eat can be a sign of stress you know like i have two snakes like most of my snakes because i work with them so much and and habituate them to things will eat in their enclosure or out of their enclosure whatever they'll eat on the counter (laughs) but i have two snakes (laughs) hanging off of it yeah um that i know when i have to clean their enclosure they're nervous like they're not Mm -hmm. they're they're being stretched out of their comfort zone i get them out i put them in temporary holding I always give them a perch and a hide while they're in temporary holding, but they're nervous, and they're not going to eat in there. I, I know these two particularly ones, so I don't even try. I just clean their enclosure. I put them back. I give it a day or two, and then I feed them in their enclosure. I mean, snakes are really individuals, and, and those are two of the pop ones. But then I have these other pop ones, you know, that would literally eat wherever. They don't care. They're going to eat. <laughs> right. You know, you know I so- I'm, I had one the other night trying to shift out, but instead of getting into the tub, it got down on the couch. And I'm like, okay, 
You know, I've already got the rat, the thing in the tongs, and it just ate on the couch. I'm like, fine, eat on the couch. <laughs> and Not I really want your animals to be that comfortable around you. But some of yeah, them are right. never going to get to that level, and you just have to recognize that and work with them. Right. You just have to work with them and do what's best for them. Do what works for them. Don't worry about what other people are doing. Or you right. need to do what's best for your animal, and your animal's going to tell you. Right. So, and, go ahead. I don't know, I just wanted. I guess we we're going to shift to the cohab study, but why don't you finish up what you were uh, about to say, and then we'll go there. What was I going to say? Oh, some oh. some want like need more exercise mm. than others. Like actively seek to come out of their enclosure versus others, and mm-hmm. you have to. But if you don't give them the opportunity to do that, you're not going to know. And so, like Benu demands time out of his enclosure like if i didn't have a lock on those sliding doors he would get out he knows that they slide he knows where the little handle is on the edge and he'll go to it and push so hard that sometimes he'll bounce himself off and here's how i know and here's how he communicates with me he will Mm. not um so edging is when the snake is going to, it's a stereotypical behavior where they go around the walls of their enclosure and rub on it. It's almost like mm-hmm. equivalent to pacing. Well, he doesn't do that. But what, and what he does, if, if, I, if it's dark and no one's in the room, is he just sits. If the lights <laughs> come on and someone comes in the room, he comes to the front glass and he starts rubbing on the front of the glass and pushing on the edges of the sliding doors because he wants out. And he, and he knows he can't get out if no one's in the room. I mean, clearly, if he's only doing it when the light comes on and people come in the room, he's making an association there. And snakes are great associative learners. Like, they couldn't have survived mm-hmm. 100 million years of evolution or 150 million, whatever it is, and not be, be good associative learners and know how to adapt to finding prey and finding hides and all this stuff. So I go let him out. And he comes out, and he roams around. And if he's out long enough, he'll eventually go back to his enclosure. But if I have to put him up before he thinks he's been out long enough, um, I equate it to pouting. He'll come to the front of the enclosure again and start rubbing on it. And I won't let him out. So then he'll just lay there, like along the front glass with his nose at the edge. And he's almost like his body's just limp, and he'll look at me. (laughs) And I'm like, that snake, like he's um he's like the next evolution of snake or something. He's like a X men snake version of the next generation. <laughs> I mean, well, sometimes his behavior freaks me out how intelligent he is. He was huh. funny because with the previous owner apparently couldn't be handled, bit several people, um, would come flying out of the cage at feed time. And then when he was returned to me, he was fine. He was generally very laid back, didn't really care too much about what I was doing, kind of mm-hmm. just hung out in the back of his uh, – I had him in a 41 court, and he right. was just kind of chill and whatever. And then I send him to you, and you're telling me he's all over the place. He's inquisitive. He's interactive. He's learning how doors open, and I'm like, holy right. crap. Like, you know, everything about it was just weird with him to well, me, and, and it's I- just – you so had odd. told me that, and so, yeah. like, the first two weeks he was here, I just left him be. And then yeah. when I went to feed him the first time, I took him out, and I fed him in a tub, because you had told me about the feeding thing, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to take him out, because I don't want to mm-hmm. propagate that. 
and he ate right away in the tub. So, you know, when it's time to feed him a couple weeks later, I take him out to put him in the tub, and he's not even all the way in the tub yet, and he whips around, and he bites himself. Like, (coughs) all of him wasn't inside the tub, and he bit himself. Okay. And I'm like, okay. So he already knew that he was going to get fed in there after just one time. He's very – he learns quick. So then the third time – I'm trying to think how I did it. He has a very calm feeding response now, but I had to work mm-hmm. with that a little bit. Um, oh, I know what I did the third time is I put the tub out, like I stationed it outside of his enclosure, and I put the rat in it, and I opened his enclosure, and he came out, and he moved around and found it and got in and ate his rat. And so, That's cool. <laughs> um, Sometimes when he's out exploring, he'll go to where I store those tubs and he'll start, like, snooping around them. (laughs) But when it's feeding time, I put it in a specific location with the lid off, and he knows to go in it. And he behaves differently when he comes out and wants to eat than he does when he comes out and just wants to explore. So if, if he's asking to come out and he comes out and he wants to eat, he'll just get an ambush position right there outside of his enclosure and and be like a statue and not move. But if he's not interested in eating, he'll just start exploring around the house. And if he goes in an off-limits area, I put him back in his enclosure. So if I'm in the room and he goes towards an off-limit area, he stops himself and turns around. But last night, I wasn't in the room. My -hmm. husband was. And he went into an off-limits area, and I hear my husband, like, telling the dog to get away and... I come back, and my husband's sitting on the floor with them, and and I said, what happened? And he said, well, he came down, you know, off the exercise area, and he cr- climbed down the counter, and he's crawling across the floor and getting in the dog kennel. <laughs> but he waited until I left the room to do that. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> so they're great at associating behaviors with outcomes. It's really, and they all are good at that, but he's very conniving about it. Damn. Yeah. Huh. I could so see cool. if he wasn't in the right situation and people weren't recognizing his behavioral signals that he would bite someone. Um, we had a stranger over here one night, mm. and he he came like the first third of his body off of his ledge, and he got like he froze like a statue and effed his neck and laid it real flat, and he stared at that person the whole time they were here. It scared me. Like, I wouldn't, no way, have opened his enclosure at that point. And then when that person left, he went back and sat on his ledge, and then, you know, later on, he woke up and wanted out like normal and was fine. That's, he, it's so weird. He's freaky. Yeah, he is. Yeah. That's so cool. You know, and it's, 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 because, I mean, I've had very limited interaction with him like i think i had him for like maybe two months after he hatched and then to get him back for i think i I think i only had him for like a month or two before i he cleared my quarantine and then he went to you so you know it wasn't that it's it's just so weird so well he's very outgoing but he also is not a snake that is going to tolerate it if you do something to him he doesn't want you to do you know i can see that I was taking a picture of him one day in the day when he was sleeping. And I do that a lot, but I got right in his face and he bit the camera. <laughs> like I still have a teeth mark on my, on my camera case. But again, when it was later in his regular time when he usually wants out, he was fine. 
you know? Yeah. I just, he didn't, and probably what happened is he was sleeping and he woke up and all of a sudden this, like, camera's in his face. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's like, what the (laughs) heck? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So so I, I just noticed that the animals will express preferences to you. I have another snake that doesn't have a preference for coming out you know sometimes he'll come to the front of the glass i'll open the enclosure and he'll sit there on the threshold but he'll never come out and that's his choice yeah right and we're not going to know what their preferences are unless we give them those opportunities to tell us you know right eric open up all your bins and let me know who crawls out and who doesn't Uh, Not all at once. I've had that that happen all at once. (laughs) I had a uh, I had a team more get out and then let three others out, and that was a great day. Uh, uh, Some jackass who looks kind of like me forgets to lock (laughs) cages every once in a while, um, and left the female team more unlocked. She got out and she let three other snakes out, and then went back into her cage. She opened the doors to the other enclosures. No, they were in racks, so she went behind the tubs and then moved them open. Oh. Yeah, they're very mean like that. And uh, luckily everyone was found, but I, you know when something's wrong when you open the door and there's a rat snake that's staring you in the face. Uh-oh. And you're like, oh, oh. So it, anyway, but let's talk about your cohab study. Um, what is entailing in that and kind of like walk us through what that's about and what you're kind of trying to find out there? So – I only started that because mm-hmm. I discovered one had never been done. And there's all this huge controversy about cohabbing. Yes. And I see it on Facebook, you know. Okay. And I'm like, well, what does science say? Like, why are you guys having these arguments on Facebook? Why don't we just see what studies have shown? Well, it turns okay. out there aren't any studies. <laughs> turns out um, – <laughs> There aren't any studies. There are studies on breeding, like breeding groups being cohabbed together, but not just on keeping snakes together, although it's done in zoos and it's done in some private collections without any issues. Um, then you'll have other people that say, I've had a snake eat another snake. I mean, you know all the, all the things that people say, but there's right. not been any actual controlled study to see um, what if snakes even prefer um, the company of a conspecific or not, or or if they can be housed that way. So I decided to just do a little trial of my own. Mm-hmm. Um, and right now I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five pairs together. Okay. Um, and one, the, the Darwins are the ones that I've actually documented the most and, like, taken the most care from day one um, to do all the heavy documentation on and write and write data down on and um, actually do a separated enclosure with a doorway in between and, and, and all of this. The others I have in like oversized enclosures with mm-hmm. two of everything, but there's no barrier down the middle. Um, and there haven't been any issues at all. And the Darwins who basically have two connected enclosures do spend the majority of their time on the same side of the enclosure. They may not always be together, like within, like touching each other, but they're usually always on one side or the other together. And I will hmm. say that 100% of the pears, after they're, they've eaten, because I take them out and separate them for feeding and then put them back in, 
So after there's been some kind of disruption, like they've been taken out to feed or I've cleaned their enclosure or changed something in it, they seek each other out and they'll perch together for a while afterwards, even if normally they spend time apart. After there's been some sort of kind of event, they'll perch together for several hours after. And at first that worried me, especially after the feeding. I thought, well, what if they try to eat each other? Like they they just fed, you know. But no, they're yeah. just, they're just sitting together. Um, hmm. And I'm not going to try to say why they do that. These studies are not to answer why. My studies are just to answer what do the snakes prefer, because that's what we should try to give them if that's what they prefer. You know, we may never know why they like this substrate over another, and it doesn't really matter why. It just matters that we know they like this one, and that's the one we should give them. Right. Um, so I don't try to answer the why questions. I just try to to def- try to definitively say they prefer this over something else. So none of my carpets, I have a pair of Inlands together, a pair of Darwins, a pair of undocumented carpets, and two pairs of pop ones. And the pop one pairs aren't male-female, they're sisters. Okay. Um, and there's, there's absolutely zero drama, zero issues, but I have them set up where they have identical resources. Like they don't have to share anything if they don't want to. They each have their right. own resources, a hundred percent. You think maybe that's the thing? Closure, huh? You think maybe that's like because I've been asked several times, like you know, I have a ball python. Can I carpet python live with it? And I'm like, uh, no. I mean, that's just I mean my go-to. I don't know but, what would happen if you put two snakes that aren't the same species together. Yeah, and and but, really, to know for sure. So I did have a, a sixth pair together. Mm-hmm. Um, that undocumented pair I got from the pet shop, and I, I think they were both males, and I don't even think they're the same kind of carpet. I think one's probably a Darwin and one's probably a Coastal. Okay. But they were together at the pet shop, so I left them together when I got home, and I left them together till they were probably 18 months old, mm-hmm. and I think they're both males, and nothing happened. They just started spending less and less time together. So they used to perch together and go in the hide together, but then eventually, like, one would be out and the other would be in the hide, and then they'd swap. And then they're growing, and I told my husband, well, I think we either need to give them a bigger enclosure or separate them, and I think they're both males. And they're about 18 or 19 months old probably because they didn't give me a hatch date. So Mm -hmm. I should probably before, you know, maybe they wouldn't combat, maybe they would. I just think it's probably not a good idea. So yeah. I separated them. Well, and they'd always been very handleable before and eaten. One of them had always eaten well, been a garbage disposal. The other one had always been the Darwin, what I think the Darwin was kind of finicky about eating. So I separate them. The, the one goes off food like it didn't eat for over three months. They mm-hmm. both become really difficult to handle, like jumpy. And the one that had been a garbage disposal went off food for a little while. Um, And then he started eating intermittently. And now he's back on track, but he's still jumpy when I go to handle him, and he wasn't before. So I found all that interesting behavior after I separated him. And I don't know if that's because they were used to tactile sensation from the other snake. And so when I touched him, it wasn't a big deal, but now it's different. I'm just conjecturing here. I mean, I don't know. Right. So I think it would be interesting to, like, take this adult pair that I got from the college because they've been together 
since before I had them, since before the college had them. Like, they've been living together for who knows how long. And what would happen if I separated them? But then, you know, my mom says, don't do that. They've been together all this time. You can't separate them. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and they, they are together a lot. And a, a weird thing happened the last time the female went into shed. She's in a hide box. And I go to check on her because I hadn't seen her in a while. And she hissed at me. And she's in blue. And the male came out and coiled in front of the hide box opening and got in a defensive posture. And he sat there for several days like that until she came out and shed. And so I thought, wow, maybe they have more of a relationship than I realized. I mean, they lay together all the time despite having – at one time I had like six hides in there, and they'd always be in the same one. Hmm. So now I have two large hides in there, and they're still usually in the same one. And I have, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven perches in there and two shelves. And they're always on the same one, and the perch is constantly falling down from too much weight. So, (laughs) you know, when my mom says, well, don't separate them, they've been together all the time, I can't definitively say that there's nothing to that. Right. Um, So I think I would like to know, though, like, I would like to know what would happen if I separate them. Maybe nothing, but maybe they'd act differently. So I think the, I think I might get another identical enclosure to this one and connect mm-hmm. it and just do it that way and see what happens. That I mean, it, it's so weird because it's like it, it almost seems like where people tend to go wrong is that they don't have enough resources for all of them where it's not a big enough – it's like a smaller – hot spot so they end up having to fight over it. Right. Or right. And, you know, and I stuff don't like want to test that theory. Like I'm not no. gonna take two of them and put them in what I know to be too small and have only single resources to see what would happen if you did it. Like I'm not that kind of researcher. Like there are researchers who would do that, but that's not me. Like I'm not mm-hmm. gonna deliberately test that. You don't have Thunderdome? Um, like, go ahead, fight yeah. over it. Like, you know, figure <laughs> <Yeah>. it out. <laughs> no, it's I mean not cool. all, my setups they have ample resources and ample right. space um and you know there's the omaha zoo because uh justin julander posted those pictures of his visit there recently mm-hmm. uh, and he took pictures of the bread lie enclosure and they have four female bread lie living in the same enclosure together and so then i talked a little bit online to the keeper and mm-hmm. he said um you know it's a huge enclosure with multiple resources and he separates them to feed them, and he's never had any issues. And so I personally, awesome. based on all this, don't think there's any issue with doing it if you do it right. Mm. But to me, the cons are, from a keeping standpoint, it's a lot harder. Thank you. <laughs> yes. It's a lot harder from a keeping standpoint to keep two or more animals in one enclosure than one because sometimes you don't know which one shed, which one defecated, mm-hmm. which one urinated. You have to take them out to feed, and I do that with mine if I'm training them. But if I'm not training them or there's not a, a reason to take them out that night, then I feed them in the enclosure. But I can't do that with these cohabbed right. ones. So I don't know. I just think that from a keeping standpoint, it's harder. And then when yeah. I want to train with one, the other, the other one always interferes, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so um, there are some cons to it, but... I'm not sure those are from the snake's perspective, but from a keeping perspective, I see that there are some cons to it. 
It's yeah. just way easier to care for one animal in one enclosure and know that it's shed, that it eliminated, um, you know, that it's the one regurgitating or or whatever's going on. You know it's that one snake because it's the only one in there. And right. when you've got two in there, then it's kind of yeah, guesswork. You know, if you take a fecal sample in to be checked and it has endoparasites, well, you got to treat both of them because you don't know which, which one the sample which comes one? from. Right. Um, I don't think that there's a there's a problem with it from the snake's perspective if you set it up with ample space and resources, and it's not a species of snake that is known to eat other snakes. I mean, I think that common sense would tell you not to keep two snake eating snakes together. What? Why? What could what could possibly go wrong? Tally <laughs> kings will do great together. Oh no! Like it's, yeah, you. You'd think you wouldn't have to explain this to people, like, but th- I guarantee you there's somebody out there who's going, like, I don't know, every time I put a snake in with my blackhead, the blackhead's the only one that lives. It's weird. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Jesus. Um, but I think, like, with these carpets, and Justin cohabs his, he told me, um, he keeps even trios together all year long. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And he said mm-hmm. he doesn't have any issues. And, and honestly, I've been doing this cohab study now for going on a year. And there's been zero issues, like, between the snakes. Like, I've had keeping issues with trying to train one and the other one comes out and is interfering or things like that. But um, Putting a shift door. Yeah, I'm going to have to. Yeah. Like, I'm trying to target train the Darwins because I think that will help them a lot. And the female was actually making a little progress, but now the male is starting to interfere when I'm trying to work with her. <laughs> so then I have to separate them first. But to separate them first, I have to, like, interact with them, and they're not really there they don't yet. Train. So, yeah. Like, the pop ones, I can just reach in and get them out. There's no issue there. It's not – they're used to it. It's right. fine. I can reach in and take one out and train the other or, or take them both out and put them in bins and feed them or feed one in the enclosure and feed one out. They're just easy, you know. But mm-hmm. not every species or not every individual set of snakes is going to be that way, and then what are you going to do? It's just a. It can be a pain, but yeah. I think it's not a problem if you do it right to keep them together. You know. Yeah. And so far, nothing's popped up that has indicated that it's an issue. I think. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know why it's it's so controversial because to me it just comes back to what's best for you and your snakes, and how are this? If the snakes are thriving, then what you're doing is obviously fine. True. You know, if the yeah. snakes aren't thriving, like these these <laughs> ones I got from the college, one had an upper respiratory infection. They weren't shedding properly. They were they weren't eating. They weren't active. And when I brought them here, I put them in a different setup with different parameters, and they've never missed a meal. They've gained well, I thought they were adults, but they've gained like 400 grams since they've lived with me. <laughs> um, they have perfect sheds they're active they're engaged in what's going on around them they perch you know i don't know what to say i think if your your environment is is adequate for them and the snake's thriving and it's shedding and it's eating and it's eliminating and it's it's exhibiting natural behaviors then whatever you're doing is fine and that goes with enclosure types too i have them in all different enclosure types i have one in a tub because that's where it thrives Right. And I have some in exoterras because they're very outgoing 
and they don't like the constraint of the closed sides that they can't see out of. And then I have a lot in PVC-type enclosures because they like the combination of the security but coming to the front and looking out. Right. And, and your snake will tell you what it prefers. It's really easy to tell if you watch them enough. That's the key. And so what I hate <laughs> is people who get, say, you, you can never keep a snake in a tub or you should never keep – a snake in this type of enclosure or whatever it's what is your snake doing well then that's what you can mm -hmm. as long as it can exhibit natural behaviors you know then keep it in what it's doing well in not what you want it to be in right because it's not about us it's about the animal and what's best for it but you're right exactly mm -hmm. i've experienced so, that with other things other than carpets but yeah it's uh no matter what people on Facebook say, you know, you do what's best for the snake, you know? Yeah. And so the cohab thing I just did because not that I wanted to cohab snakes. I think it's more of a pain to keep them together, but no one had done this study and there was no, there was nothing science-based to give anyone any guidance. And I thought, well, let me just see what happens. Let me set a very controlled environment up and see what happens. Right. And nothing's happened. They've been fine. And they do spend the majority of their time in proximity to each other. Like seldom is one-on-one -on -one in one enclosure and one in the other enclosure. Even if they're not sitting together or hiding together, they're both on the same side. And I can't yeah. say why. I mean, I'm not trying to answer why. I'm just trying to say these are the facts under controlled conditions. Right. Huh. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. Um I guess do we do we talk about the the behavior of the bread lie, you know, like did you go into that at all? A little or? bit. We just talked right. That's a pretty simple study and it's not even full. Like I'm just setting it up now so that when the intern starts we can go full board on with that. And that's okay. just a simple study to be able to tell new keepers, "Hey, you know, we did these studies and and saw that bread lie like to spend over 60% of their time arboreally, and so you should try to have an arboreal setup, but they do spend you know this much of their time in the ground, and about 10% of the time they use a humidity box, so you should probably give them one. I mean, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. You know, gotcha. just to get a, get a good, uh, simple idea of, hey, here's an ideal setup for them based on what we've seen from this, from these 17 animals or from these, it eventually hopefully will be 20 animals. This is what we see. Right. Um, yeah. There's really nothing more than that. And then I may get, like it's just so obvious they prefer shelves over perches that I might also break it down into that, like in document. I don't that, know. That seems I like to that. be a thing with carpets, you know. I mean, you'll, I mean, you just look at the AP carpet cage. There's a big shelf in the back, and a lot hey. of people will say, when they're younger, they seem to be more perch, uh, mm -hmm. which I don't know if that's accurate because that's what we offer them because that's what's easy to put in a tub. Or, yeah. Right. You know, um, but when they're adults, you know, you have people that use those shelves a lot. Mine yeah. love to curl up on top of their bins. I mean, I have those big tough tote, the, the, the 10 gallon uh -huh. tubs in there. They, they sit on top of those all the time. Yeah, or, and, and I was going to suggest that. Yeah, it's tough. Great. It's not easy to put a. Sh it's not as easy to put shelving in as perching. 
And so mm. as an alternative, you can put some kind of a container in there, like a bin, a Tupperware container, a deli container that's tall, and yeah. they'll, they'll lay on top of it and use that as a ledge all the time. I, and then, I yeah, like that, too, because they can move it. Because, like, I've had certain moms, before they lay, move the bin right, and then get inside of it. And I'm like, after that, after they do that, I don't touch it because that's, that's where they want it. Right. So, you know. Yeah. yeah, and it, it does have two purposes because you put a hole in the side and they can go inside of it and they can lay on top of it. Mm-hmm. Right. And so yeah. that's a super simple alternative to trying to install a shelf if you, if you don't have the ability to do that. I'm not but very good with the like levels. Yeah. to sit up high on some type of a ledge. And, you know, once this this intern, I guess, will be here for a semester, so 15 weeks, but I think we should have it dialed in enough that we could then take the eight pop ones and do it really easy and, you know, just do the different subspecies, not for anything complicated, but just a basic who likes to perch, who likes it on the ground, who likes ledges over perches, right. that kind of thing. Just That'd be so weird. a better idea. It, like, imagine if it splits down, like, the subspecies. Like, we find out just by the numbers, spread light like to do this more than, say, pop ones and all this other stuff. That'd be kind of crazy. But also really cool. <laughs> so. I know, but they do have different personalities. Like my yeah, top ones, they'll come out some, but they're more like, eh, you're not yep. bothering me. And I'm happy to sit out here and perch and stuff while you're here. But if you open the door, I'm not necessarily going to come out. Right. Where the bread lie, once, it seems like once they've experienced being out once or twice, then they start <laughs> asking to come out. Like, mm-hmm. The light comes on, people walk in the room, let me out. It's not just Bennu. The younger ones are starting to do it too, which makes me wonder how active they are in the wild. Like, do they move around a lot in the wild? I tried to find a paper on breadline natural history, and I couldn't find one. So if you have one, share it. Yeah. But I don't know how much they move around in the wild. Mine move around a lot at night. Like, they move a lot. And that's one of the things in the study that I'm wrestling with how to capture that. You know, because if I'm I'm marking behaviors every half hour, what Mm -hmm. if I just happen to look at the one while it's not moving, but the whole 25 minutes before it was climbing around? So I don't know if I'm going to have to film them and then sit there and have – the intern, Maybe. have the intern do everything. Well, yeah, have always have the intern do it. I mean, that's as long as we got go the intern, use it. Yeah. All the footage and document how much time is spent moving. Because just watching them, it's a lot at night. During the day, yeah, they just sit there and sleep. Right. But they sit up high and sleep on a ledge or a perch. But at night, they're active. Yeah. And I stay I mean, up with them, so they're active till about three in the morning, and then they all start going <laughs> to bed, and then I go to bed. Um, I'd say so, yes because I mean, here's like, a, we, we recorded with a night vision thing. Numerous chondro people do that. I mean, yeah, I, our, I, yeah. I think I'm gonna have to do that. Here's the experience in the wild, um, at least for jungles and co- well, for jungles is. You would get them right. There seemed to be a time right when the, you know, when the sun would go down and Mm -hmm. you probably had up until about, you know, maybe 12, 12 o'clock, something like that, 12 Uh a.m. And then it was kind of like it seemed to stop. So that's when we stopped, 
you know, and okay. it could just be, it just could be that situation that we were in or whatever, but it just seemed odd that every night that we would go out, we would go, you would see like everything would be out as soon as that sun was, as soon as it cooled off and everything would mm-hmm. be out. And then, you know, like three, four hours later, everything seemed to go back to where to hiding or whatever it was doing. See, and that's interesting. And I wonder how much human activity, not in the wild, but in our captive settings, influence behavior. Because the snakes in my snake room, which are all my pop ones, the Darwins, and the jungles, like I'll walk in sometimes uh-huh. and they'll all, I'll flip on the light and they'll all be out moving around. Mm-hmm. But then I'm in here now and the light's on, so then I notice they settle someplace. And mm-hmm. the bread light do the opposite. When there's hmm. no activity in the room, they're just all sitting around. But if I come in and turn the light on and start walking around, they get up and they start moving around and they come to the front of the enclosures, either probably to see if I have food or if I'm going to let them out. And I think that's very interesting. Huh. You think yeah. maybe it's because the like the larger snakes kind of might be a little bit more, I don't really care because I'm the big animal in the territory where some of the smaller ones might be a little bit more shy. I don't know either. It's weird. You know who doesn't care is the Mm. inland. Like, they don't care about anything. They're just like, I'm doing my (laughs) thing, and and I don't care if you're here or not, or if you're holding me or not. I'm just doing my thing, and that's they're cool. Inlands are perfect. The perfect Morelia. (laughs) (laughs) Although the perfect pet. They are the perfect pet. Like, that is the, the, the Morelia I'd recommend to somebody who wanted to get a carpet. Yeah. And had never had one before is yep. is a uh, inland. They're just so nice. Yeah, people are gonna get Super spoiled chill. on inlands. Yeah, <sighs> so much space. different than uh, I know <laughs> all, those, yeah. all those other yeah. nasties. Yeah. Um, I know. Right. My husband's telling me. I guess it cuts off after two hours. The, the oh, live yeah. stream. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. He yeah, came we're in here and he now. said, "Oh, I thought you were done." And, I knew when I got your list of questions, there was no way that we were yeah, going to be I able know. to discuss all this in two hours. It's just too much information. The point, the point is, is we load it up because then we have an excuse to have you back because we're like, we didn't get all of it, and then we can talk more. Yeah. Like that's we we have to try to milk good interactions for as many episodes as possible. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> well, well, I'm, I'm curious. happy. I'm always happy to talk about snake behavior and training. And awesome. Mainly because I, I, people aren't thinking about it enough and doing it enough, and there are people out there that don't even know it's possible. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And we do yep. need to take snake keeping up. I mean, it's the 21st century. Like, I thought we'd be in flying cars and stuff by now, and we're still flying. <laughs> like, right. Some people are still keeping snakes with, like, heat rocks. I don't know. <laughs> they still sell those things. Like That's I've, what yeah, I'm talking about. That's what I'm saying. So I'll I'll ask one question and no one can ask this question and then we can jump off. But do you have any other studies that you're thinking about or any questions that you want answered uh, in the near future? Well, I have a lot of questions I want answered and I all I have ideas for a ton of, of studies, but I just need, there's just no way I need to concentrate on these right now and right. bring them to some kind of a conclusion Gotcha. Um, before I, I think about doing anything else. Oh, you know? okay. I got gotcha. I mean, I'm doing so much already, and the breadline one's just getting started. Um, right. The cohab one, I need to wrap up, like, as far as 
publish something, like collect all my data and put it in some kind of a, a legible form and and see if I can get it published. Because I've been mm-hmm. watching them a year now, and I'm pretty sure nothing's going to happen different in the <laughs> next year that happened this year. Right. So, um, but it's a lot of work to to do yeah. all this, and so I really don't want to get bogged down with additional stuff. Gotcha. Um, okay. I just want to try to promote science-based snake keeping and, um, you know, good welfare for the animals. That's that's what I want to get out there. Sure. I think you're doing a good job at that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Both good things that things we need more of. So. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, I appreciate you bringing me on the show. And you know, when I started yeah. kind of getting into this a couple of years ago, there was a lot. There were a lot of people that are like, "Why are you doing that? Why are you training the snakes?" <laughs> There's so much resistance, and I'm like, culture. Some people in this in the snake culture just aren't forward thinking, and they're not no. they're not thinking no. in a science based oh, manner God. at all. And um, it frustrates me, but I just kind of ignore those people and keep doing what I'm doing. Good. Yeah. That's definitely something you should do, but um, we do the same. <laughs> oh yeah, right now we try. <laughs> I don't. I listen to no one. So um, <laughs> clearly, that's obvious. That's obvious sometimes. But um, Laura, we got the last couple questions. These are the like the fun ones, um, and we'll just yeah. hit those, and then we'll uh, let you get back. You probably have a, a bread lie that wants to get out. Um, probably in there going nuts right now. He's so he's yeah. mad. Um, um, and it basically, is, uh, if you could keep any reptile without any limitations, what would it be and why? All right. Well, I have one more species of Morelia that I want to get, and that's a rough-scale python. Ooh. So I, I am going to add one of those at some point. And then there once are a I lot have of babies that, this year, so yeah, huh? there there have been a lot of roughy babies this year. I mean, so. I know, and I've seen some, but you know, I splurged on that diamond, and I got the bread life for the study, so I have to kind of just wait a little while. <laughs> yeah, I got um, it. But I do. I am going to add uh, at least one because I I I think I hear great things about them, and I want to see how they are in comparison to the other. Morelia, but as right. far as like a more exotic type of reptile, uh-huh. um, I was gonna say crocodilian because I think they're cool. But then you know I was reading through some of my herpetology stuff earlier, and there's this whole section on the tuatara. And man, <laughs> it would be cool to have one of those. Tuatara, it's awesome. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think cool just because they're so rare. And people don't even know what they are. I mean, science isn't even exactly sure what, what they are. Um, right. That, that I would have – that would that would be what I would get, one of those. Awesome. Okay. I like that. Um, so if you could go and uh, herp anywhere in the world, uh, where would you go and what would you be hoping to find? Oh, I bet you can guess this one. Alice Springs, <laughs> the McDonald Ranges. Oh, <laughs> bread lie. I would be I would be out there camping with bread lie. Yeah, nice. <laughs> that's what I'd be doing. Taking data and all that other fun stuff while you're out I, there, probably. I would, yeah, I, yeah. I would. <laughs> all right, and then uh, what is the best way for people to follow you, get in contact with you, check out all the stuff that you have, uh, as far as your behavior studies? Uh, how would they do all that? So the best way is Facebook. Um, behavior mm-hmm. Education LLC um, is a Facebook page. And mm-hmm. then I, it, there's also a website, behavioreducation.org. 
And um, then I have a YouTube channel, but you can get to the YouTube channel, you know, via Facebook or the website. Okay. And I have a blog on the website that I'm trying to post a lot of my findings on and update people as to what's going on with the studies on. Right now, that's kind of where I'm putting the information. Um, and then as far as the training article, that's in the International um, Association of Animal Behavior Consultants Journal. It's their spring edition, and it's free to read online. Um, you just have to scroll down to the reptile section to find it. Okay. Nice. Very cool. So That's cool, awesome. Cool, cool. And and we, we, we expect to see really cool studies and really cool stuff out of this and um, hopefully get a better understanding of how to keep these guys for I guess newbies would this would definitely help out with that kind of stuff so and also yeah, and, us I mean people who've been in it to kind of take another turn at it well and my goal really especially for new people I mm-hmm. don't know or people who've had maybe a different kind of snake and are getting a carpet they're not like other snakes mm-hmm. and I want the best thing for the animal and the best thing for the animal is for the animal and the person to have a good relationship so that that the person's not disappointed in the animal, not frustrated with the animal, and doesn't discard the animal. Because I do work in animal rescue, and so many animals end up yeah. discarded because um, people had unrealistic expectations of them. That I hate seeing that, and that's what dogs, horses, snakes, any kind of animal. What I want is a is a successful relationship between that animal and its person, so that that animal mm-hmm. doesn't end up with 20 different homes and in the rescue chain, you know, in that rescue world. Mm-hmm. Or discarded right. or neglected yeah. or abused. Or released into some place it's not supposed to be or something like that. Yeah, like that. Florida. Yeah. Don't oh, no. carpet Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, get, I get in trouble if I mention that. So, you know. It's, we don't say uh, that and we don't say don't, his name. <laughs> and we don't say his name. Exactly. Those are the two rules. Yeah. Only two rules here. That's right. Well, yeah, don't but. get frustrated with your snake and release it into the wild. And right. don't, you. <laughs> you know, abuse it and don't neglect it and just try to have a good relationship with it. Try to, this world, word um, umwelt, you know, is big in animal training in the zoo world right now, and that is seeing the world from the animal's perception. So trying mm-hmm. to see the world the way that that species perceives it. And try to do that because it's not about you. It's about this animal who's in right. a captive setting because we've bred it and we've put them in captivity. And it's our responsibility to care for them properly and to give them the best life possible that they can have even though they're in confinement. Yeah. Right. I just want Definitely. people to have successful relationships with their animals so that the animals don't end up discarded. That's the bottom line. Which it's is a good, goal. good, good, good bottom line. Yeah, it's awesome. But no, it's been uh, it's been a great thing, and you gave us a lot of stuff to work on and to think about. So uh, this has been awesome, and we're definitely going to have you come back and tell us your results and your findings from some of the other stuff. Okay, sure. well, I'm happy to do that. I really appreciate you guys. Yeah, thank you. It's awesome. Thank you. Awesome All right, show. and I'll be Loved waiting it. to hear about those bread lie babies, Owen. Well, you're, you're, you will be the you will be the second person. I'm sorry, third person to know. So because okay. I got to, I see it. I got to tell him, and then yeah. I'll tell you. So, All, right. All right, sounds good. All right, okay, thanks, you guys Lord. take awesome. care. You too. Okay, Bye. you too. Bye bye.
Very cool, that's man. So cool. Very cool. No, dude, that's, yeah. I love that kind of stuff, and I love the animal behavior aspect of it. And to be honest, when I was in college, if you could have like told several of the people there that, yes, you can train a crocodile to you know, recognize a target and sit in place, half of them would mm-hmm. probably be astonished. And some right. of them, and most of the people were there for animal behavior. So it's it's really cool to have this kind of stuff yeah. going on. Yeah, there's stuff we didn't even get to on the on the I thing know. for sure. So <laughs> we'll uh, we'll definitely have, we a, have another. That's one. why we always have the option of a second episode. So yeah, cool. Yeah. Um, cool. So uh, next week um, we are talking to uh, the legendary. Randall Berry. Uh, he will be joining us. We're going to be talking about the history oh, of the culture. Oh, you a little nervous right now? <laughs> well, it's one of those. It's one of those episodes now. It's become one of those episodes where it's like, why? Uh, why are you talking to me? <laughs> like, <it's>, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's so yeah, many yeah, other yeah. people you should be talking right. to. But all right. Yep. No, we'll deal. So, yeah. So that should be cool. Um, and uh, I, I, I really do uh, like talking to the old school guys. And I think uh, I do. to to document that stuff is um, is important, especially for the newer keepers coming in, uh, you know, and I'll continue to bang that 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 bell until we uh, we get we get the group, you know, all these old people. I'm trying to get like guys like Doug Price, you know. Yeah, um, that would yeah. be cool. Um, and eventually, eventually, we're gonna get Casey mm. Lazik. That's gonna happen. Eventually. <laughs> eventually. Yeah. 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 Um, it was weird. I I haven't heard of Tom Keoghan in a while on Facebook, and then today it pops up that he just uh, hashed out rough scale pythons, and I was like, damn, should oh, I hit him up again? Friend. Should I there should are... I go one more try? <laughs> I don't know what the hell is up with this year, but there are so many rough scale babies oh, everywhere dude. in heaven. This is <laughs> so, the year where they become 300 bucks, bro. <laughs> I, oh, sweet. Like, you know, the right before I produced them, yes, bomb the market, everyone. <laughs> you bastards. Um, but it, it's cool because, uh, was it Terry got a clutch, which we're, I'm, I'm mad he didn't yes. tell us about it. You know, um, We'll bring that he up told, later. He told me. I don't know what you're what? talking about. <laughs> Some bullshit oh. happening oh. here. Yeah. <laughs> He's afraid you would have bought the whole clutch, man. You know? You're right. I would have. But, you know, also I can't afford that shit. But it, it, right. God damn it. He tells you. I'm, now I'm mad at him. Now he's foreboding. Yep. Now. Nah, now no, you may never speak his name. <laughs> no. Uh, so. Beautiful. Yeah, there are a lot but, of rushes uh, being produced this year, for sure. Yeah, but that's awesome. Cool. I mean, that's cool, man. It, it is. It is. It's. It's like, I, and I've said this a million times. Like, I don't care. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't <laughs> make them three hundred dollars. I will be they so be happy. <laughs> yeah. I will be like, I'll Sweet. take them all. <laughs> Sweet, I'm selling all these dirty ass carpet pythons. Get out of here. So you know, it's you. Come on. Dude, I, remember, I, Kai, I, remember I, Kata showed up and we're 50 bucks. Shut your mouth. So, um, I wouldn't sell all my carpets. Maybe some of them. I would probably get rid of the other stuff first. I'd be like, oh, I guess ring pythons. <laughs> ring pythons got to go. Dear Forget Owen. you. <laughs> <laughs> go to Owens. You yes. Get out of my face. It's like, but Mac it's, Hots, it's, the fifth time was not the charm. You have to go. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, keep going to try this anyway. So, right. But no, it's 
it's cool. I really like the. I, I dig it when there's different stuff being produced. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I want to see the same freaking things coming out every single year. So, uh, it's awesome. Yeah. I, I, I'm into it. So, um, I guess, uh, for us, if you want to, uh, be, uh, you know, uh, be involved in the calendar contest, it's going on 2020 NPR calendar contest is in full effect over on Morelia pick of the week. It's under the announcement um, little tab, so if you can't find it uh, there, you just click on the announcements, and you'll see it right there. Pop right up at the yep. top. Um, if you aren't a member of the Morelia Pig of the Week, now's the time to join. Make sure you a- answer the questions that are asked you when you're joining. Damn it. That's like that's not even my pet peeve. That's just an Eric one. Um, so it's yeah, they're there um, for a reason. I, I, the I, question, I'm not man. fighting you. I'm not fighting you. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus, shut up. Right, so it's please answer the questions. We can get you started. Uh, you have there are rules for the calendar competition. Obviously, we want a nice picture of the animal, uh, not in a tub. Um, if you have a planted really cool cage, it could probably be in there, but we prefer some sure. kind of outdoor yeah, yeah, yeah. something nice. Make it look nice. Please it don't have it on newspaper. Quality. Right. Yeah. yeah. You're not Thank you're you. not opening up a top a top end a high end calendar and looking at a, a uh, you know, anything top on shot. The Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Man. So um obviously there are different categories for all the different Morelia. Please enter an one animal once per category you can you can enter multiple animals but i don't want to see i don't want to see 18 shots of the same chondro from different angles like you were spinning around it just just enter it once you guys have to pick one picture of the animal to enter i know it's going to be hard but it's going to be harder for me when i see 12 of the same one so you know come on um, you can obviously enter as many times as you want, as many categories as you want. Um, we ask that the animals be in your care or your animals and that you took the pictures. Um, okay. If you had somebody take the pictures for you, that's fine too, but they need to be your animal. Obviously, the last category is wild animals, so it would be ones that you went out and found in the wild while herbing. Right. <laughs> Don't stick your right. red lie in a tree. <laughs> And call it good unless, <laughs> unless you live in Australia. Then yeah. I really can't fight you on this. So, um, Correct. But obviously, if you found a wild animal that is not in your care, doy, we just make sure that you took the picture. Okay? That's all we want. You can't Correct. go on Nat Geo and grab something and call it yours. So Right. Other Agreed. than that, it's all good. Do what you guys got to do. Good luck to everybody, and uh, yeah, don't dawdle because you're going to want to get in there uh, yeah. as soon as you can. So. Sure. Um, and uh, I just want to throw this out there. Uh, if you're interested in inland carpet pythons or I am. All, Australian wildlife in general, you should go mm-hmm. check out this pod- podcast called Aussie Wildlife Show. And they just did an episode with inland carpet pythons. It was pretty interesting. It was a pretty good, pretty good episode. There's also a couple episodes back. There's Gavin Bedford was talking about Owen Bellies, and it's just, it's a cool nice. show. Yeah, I, I I rate podcasts on how many times they mention us. So you know, I where are they on the scale at all or no? Oh no, not at all. 
They don't. That's I don't. Unfortunate. I, yeah, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> I don't think they know we exist. But um, God. <laughs> they're in Australia, so I don't know. Maybe they do. Sometimes I'm surprised people that I don't think that. But anyway, I, I don't care if say they say horrible things about me and nice things about not. you. No, 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 no. I don't care if they like us or not. I, I think their show is great. So check it out. All see wildlife show. It's worth a worth a listen for sure. And this what this awesome. week, you know, as soon as I seen it pop up in my feed, I'm like, oh my god, I can't wait to work, leave work, and drive home for an hour. So <laughs> you're like, I'm leaving early. You just like run out <laughs> yeah. the door. Yeah. <laughs> Why? I just want to drive. I know. I want to listen to podcast. Corey, I'm just gonna make what? a couple more rounds around the around the block because uh, the show's not over yet. So. But, she's uh, texting you because you're like, why? She's like, why have you been in the driveway for like the last 20 minutes? I was, <laughs> I did that before. <laughs> True story. I couldn't stop listening to the one episode, and I was just like, oh man, not that show, but yeah, a podcast. Um, so for us, MoreliaPythonRadio.com.net, check that out. For me, EBMorelia.com.net, check that out, and that's all I got. <laughs> All right, uh, for me, rogue-reptiles.com. Also, Rogue Reptiles on Facebook. Uh, Also, you can uh, follow Rogue underscore reptiles on Instagram. And I will be at the Oaks Reptile Show this Saturday, but I am just running in, grabbing my rodents, and leaving. I'm not vending shows anymore, goddammit. Suck up, asshole. But no, we'll, we'll figure that out later. I need babies first. But anyway... They'll break me again. I know I will. But uh, yes, you will. Yeah. But so, uh, if you wanted an animal and you wanted it to be delivered to Oaks, please get in contact with me uh, as soon as possible, and we can work that out. If not, uh, I'll hopefully see some of you guys there. You can grab me. You can always talk snakes and all that fun stuff. Anyway, that's all we have for you this week. So we'll say thank you all for listening, and we'll catch everybody back here next week for some more Morelia Python Radio. Good night.